Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Stacks. This is Jay. And I'm the Shanna from Boxer Tongue. No, the Boxer from Shanna Tongue. I can't believe you flubbed it. Cause like, that, that was oh, like... I flubbed it on purpose. <laughs> okay. I don't fuck up by mistake. Uh, I, I don't believe <laughs> that for one second. <laughs> <laughs> Our, no, I, I retroactively say I meant to do everything. Oh, yeah. It's the, it's, uh, that is a popular approach these days. Our uh, first film, as suggested there, I think possibly a significant part of why it was selected last week, is The Boxer from Shantung, uh, from 1972, directed by Chang Che and Pao Su Li. Uh, I think we've watched a couple of other Chang Che ones um, by this I'm point. I'm not sure. I believe so. Uh, let me just take a look at his filmography here real quick, because I think he's one that we've watched a bunch of stuff from, but maybe uh, this is the only one we've covered here. Oh, yeah, because he went on to direct The Five Deadly Venoms and The Crippled Avengers, which oh, yeah, right, we've sure. seen but haven't covered here. Yeah, which are awesome. Awesome. Well, I might like this one better, maybe. 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 Uh, also, pretty good. Also, Flag of Iron is him, too. Oh, yeah, that one was all right. Yeah, it's not quite as good as the other ones, but yeah, I've got like five or no, like I think seven others of his uh, oh, wow. waiting for us to get to. So uh, <laughs> lots to dig into there, and that'll be fun because uh, this one's a blast. This one rules. Uh, it's way more story than fighting, but I think that works to its benefit. Yeah, I mean, like not, maybe not way more, but it's more balanced towards story than the typical kung fu that we watch. Although when when there is fighting, it's huge. Oh, and that last fight sequence is incredible. One of the all-timers. <laughs> oh, for sure. Oh, man, I can't wait to get into it. So the opening credits, I really like these. It's a good way of establishing our time period, which also is a little bit unusual for the ones we've talked about, because this one's semi-present. It's like uh, these red-filtered uh, vintage images of Shanghai in, like, I don't know, circa 1900, because it's clearly post-industrialization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I figure it's around 1900, 1890s in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's kind of cool because it's semi-modern, uh, but still period. So it's not like Edo era. It's just, you know, about 100 years ago and everyone's dealing with capitalism. Yeah, they sure are, aren't they? And pointedly, I feel, uh, especially with these you know, uh, Chinese Kung Fu movies that have a really, ah, how to say it, a contentious relationship with uh, capitalism in general. Well, you know, all, everybody should have a contentious relationship with capitalism. Sure, but I, I think it's a big part of how these are presented. There, There's a, a political undercurrent to a lot of the stuff that we watch with the Kung Fu movies. It's just you know, people flying around punching each other, but underneath they're kind of saying some stuff about their culture and society. Mm-hmm. My Kung Fu is stronger than yours, but also I think we should have more than two sick days a year. Yeah, like, uh, well, my convictions like are stronger than yours, mm-hmm. right? Oh, definitely. A uh, couple notable names in the credits here that I noticed. The, the two assistant directors both pretty famous names. One of them you will know, one of them you may not know. Uh, but John Woo was oh. an assistant director on this. Oh, shit. Uh, obviously pretty famous 
uh, Hong Kong director, went on to do The Killer and all sorts of stuff, you know. Uh, Didn't he major do Face Off? He did do Face Off, yeah. Uh, and cool. uh, and Godfrey Ho is the other guy who uh, has a more low-budget career. <laughs> That's an awesome name, though. Great name. Godfrey Ho, uh, he's more in, like, the Bruno Mattai level. He did a lot of stuff like that, like those Rambo exploitation movies I've been talking about. I feel like oh, I've yeah. seen some Godfrey Ho ones of those, too. Cool, cool. Right on. That's interesting. I didn't know, I didn't notice John Woo was involved. Yeah, kind of cool. A couple uh, interesting directors really early in their careers, because it's a 72, so it's also early Shaw Brothers. Oh, yeah. It, uh, it feels really modern, though. Oh yeah, not like not like two thousands modern, but newer than seventy two. Yeah, uh, it it's got uh, an interesting approach to character, and our our main character is a really conflicted guy. He is. Uh, he thinks he knows what he wants, and then he gets a taste of what he thinks he hates, and it's like, oh no, this rules. Yeah, it's interesting. Like his whole arc is very strange, uh, and I have a couple of different thoughts on. Uh, things that it has to do with one of them probably not intentional but we were certainly talking a bit about that one before we'll we'll get to that as it comes up uh but also just sort of a prosperity gospel thing in a weird sort of way okay so our main guy ma young jen brother ma later master ma boss ma is he ever called boss boss yeah he's boss uh he's definitely boss at some point he's our titular boxer from shantung uh, just rural guy who happens to be uh, extremely good at his kung fu. We don't really find out if he's good at anything else, but he is really good at kung fu. Right. Uh, it's it's really the thing that drives him, which is usually the case with these movies, although it seems to be what drives him, but maybe it's not so much about kung fu as what kung fu can achieve for him. Mm-hmm. So he's played by uh, Quan Tai Chen, who is obviously a real martial artist, which, you know, most of these people in these films oh, yeah. are. Uh, there's an interview with him on the disc. Uh, we're obviously watching from the Shaw Scope set from Arrow. And uh, it, it's entirely about his philosophy about Kung Fu. Like, there, there's very little about the movie. It's all just like, I'm still deep into Kung Fu. This is what I care about and what I do. Oh, nice. Uh, shoot, I should, I should watch that before I give that, before we change the movies back. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, An interesting bunch of interviews on there. They're mostly kind of vintage from, I think, around 15 years ago. Okay. When they were first coming out on DVD, I guess. Right, right. So Ma, he lives in this Shanghai hostel or flop house uh, with his best buddy, Xiao Jingbei, I think. Xiao Jingbei? (laughs) Hereafter referred to as the sidekick, probably. Shao. Uh, yeah, the the basic Shao is pretty easy to keep track of. But yeah, uh, he's the best buddy who kind of gets the shaft, but ultimately is, I mean, he's one of the few survivors. So. <laughs> yeah, there's like, of all the named characters, I think two people get out of this alive. I'd say that's about right. Yeah, there's so I, many arguably characters. three. I, I think maybe the uncle has a name. <laughs> oh, you're right. He, he the uncle lives, but he, I don't know if he has a name. Yeah, that's what I'm not sure about. But yeah, there's three people who get out of this alive at the end, basically. Maybe there's a fourth who stays in the gang because I think there's those two hanger on guys. We'll get to them. Yeah, oh, I, yeah, I know right one there. of them eats it in that last fight. 
Right, I forgot they're like characters too. Sort of. Sort of. They're kind of paired characters. There's just so many characters. This is a long one for Shaw Brothers. The longest I've seen, it clocks, it's as long as Star Trek The Motion Picture. They're almost down to the minute. That's true, and very different tempos of film. (laughs) Oh, 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 of course, Star Trek being our second film, which we'll talk about later. Uh, Famously called The Motionless Picture. I don't think that's entirely fair, but I do also completely get where people are coming from with it. Uh, we we may have we may have slightly different opinions about it, but not completely different. Probably, uh, I I like it a bit more than you do because I like it a bit more than most people do, and I understand <laughs> why. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, him and Xiao Zhangbei, they they both live in this hostel, which isn't the most pleasant environment. It's basically a flop house. Yeah, and, and basically live there is more like this is where they happen to be staying right at this moment it seems to be that they have some sort of connection with this place because they keep coming back here and they ultimately bring all of the guys over from here like these guys end up being their crew somehow oh these guys are the crew these are the guys yeah oh man see there's so many to keep track of i i didn't realize that that's where he got his crew from yeah, it, it's one that takes a couple watches as well. Like, I, I gave it a couple to really get a handle on the scope of all these characters. There's just so many people to keep track of. And a very complicated uh, crime boss plot. Yeah, well, there's just so many of them. There, there's so many <laughs> underlings. So many underlings. Uh, two different uh, potentially villainous crime bosses. Uh, three, depending on how you count them. Yeah, I mean, 10C is a real enigma. Intentionally so, I think. I love that character. He's totally my favorite character in the movie. He rules. So uh, the the two of them are sleeping on the stairs in the flophouse because there's just no room for them to sleep otherwise. Like, the, the dude who owns the place is just taking people's money and, you know, wherever you can find a place to lay down will do. <laughs> I'll give you a roof. I won't give you a surface to occupy but i'll give you a roof yeah and the owner's a real jerk about it like he's waking everyone up i guess because he maybe has some sort of association with the workplace or maybe he's supposed to give one person a wake-up call if one person gets it everybody has to get it oh of course you can't just the place is so small you can't just discreetly wake up one person well you could but he doesn't no, he's screaming and also walking over people, and that's how ultimately he trips over Xiao, which is how they get into a kerfuffle with him, as they tend to do, because our, our Ma is a guy who stands by his principles, question mark? I mean, that's certainly what we're supposed to think at first. Yeah, first he certainly does. I, I, maybe he still does, but right. I don't think he knows that's... what his principles are. Yeah, I think that's the thing, is that the principles are slippery, and it's maybe less about morality than it is about status. That's that's what I kind of feel is is at least part of it. Yeah, it's it's more what he can get out of it. And so I I do feel quite a bit like Dr. Bill from last week, Tom Cruise. (laughs) Our, our Ma Young-jen, he's frustrated by his lack of upward mobility. Like, these guys are totally broke. Their clothes are ragged. They look messy. Like, Xiao's outfit is, like, cartoonishly ragged. <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, <laughs> it's and, so good. 
and and I, he just has more clothing around him, so it, it kind of looks more. The, the ragged clothes look better on Ma because he's just kind of got that sort of look about him. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Oh, you know what? Shao kind of reminds me of his outfit. Uh, hmm. The guys in the Flesh of the Fiends, Donald Pleasance and the other one. Okay. They're like ragged, Are, but like cartoonishly so. The the Leopold and Loeb guys, or yeah, no, not Leopold those, and Loeb. Uh, no, the other um, ones. Oh, that Burke other and Krim- Burke and Hare. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I could see that. But not as stylish, or not as well. Not that they were stylish, but you know, less. I mean, about- just a different, uh, a whole whole different area, but same same era, but like different parts of the globe. Mm-hmm. Eastern versus Western. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they get in a fight with the owner because he trips over him and then he's yelling at him for sleeping on the stairs. And he's like, where the hell are we supposed to sleep? We paid to sleep here, you jerk. Yeah, but he'll make it up with that guy. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. The, now that I know that that's the guy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he comes back there a couple times. I think they continue to sleep here for a while. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, it's weird. And uh, there, there's a thing that I like in the way that this movie is put together is it sort of deals out hints of things about to happen somewhere else without them actually happening. So we get all this stuff where they're fighting with the guy uh, who runs the hostel, and then it cuts to Shi Hui Feng Brothel, just an insert of the sign. And it's like, oh, something's maybe going down over there. But then nothing happens, and it goes back to our guys. <laughs> Some, something is, but we don't know about it yet. Right. Well, it, it, things are building up secretly in the background. Mm-hmm. So our guys, their thing is they wash carriages for 10C, I guess, but he doesn't know that they do. No one seems to know that they do. Yeah, they, the the carriage coachman seems to have a real problem with these guys trying to wash their carriage. Although I think the carriage guy is maybe the guy who betrays Tennessee later. I think he might be. I'm not totally sure because that takes a real long time to land. Oh, yeah, because uh, he's the only one of the Tennessee crew who seems to be like an outright jerk. Right. Uh, I, I feel like we're supposed to see Tensi as largely neutral, although questionable. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, th- this dude, the, the guy who has the coach, he like whips Shao's hand when he goes to wash the horses. It's like, hey, this is what we do. This is our job. What's your problem? Yeah, it's basically, well, you're not good enough to touch Tensi's horse kind of thing. Exactly. And I, I really like Ma's response to it because it's completely the impoverished, like temporarily uh, put out millionaire thing. Oh, he, but in his case, it's kind of true. Well, it's it's that plot. Like it's him realizing that plot, him making it happen, him manifesting it. Mm-hmm. But he also has massive kung fu skills, so that's how he can do it. So he, you know, he's a special genius, but. He says, I'm not doing as well as you are, but my day will come. (laughs) (laughs) Which he is right about. He's completely right. Yeah, but but yeah, he actually, yeah, that's right. He is always talking about using kung fu to achieve his dreams. And it's like, does that 
mean your dream is to beat up people and take their money? It kind of seems to be, ultimately. It just seems to be a matter of which class of person he's beating up and taking the money from, ultimately. Mm. Although, maybe it's more about 10C, but we'll get to that. So, <laughs> Yeah, we will. <laughs> so in here, we get another insert of just a bunch of dudes marching with a bunch of axes hidden in their sleeves. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. But then we cut back to what's going on with Ma and Xiao. Oh, yeah, right. They, they just have the axes. They don't even... It takes a bit before they even pull them out. Yeah, because, like, we're we're seeing these things happening. Like, some sort of thing is coalescing somewhere, presumably at the brothel. We have no idea where it is or what's going on. Just, like, some shit's going down. I don't know. <laughs> so Ma starts a fight, obviously. It's, it's the second fight he's already started in the first, like, ten minutes of the movie. I think his day is he just goes around and he's like one of those people who all the thugs always just want to pick a fight with but can never actually beat. Like the main character in the Yakuza games, he just walks down the street. He can't walk five steps without some asshole being like, oh, you bumped into me and you're not going to apologize, huh? I don't know. It seems more to me that Ma is looking for the fights and finding ways to bring them out of people more than people are looking to bring them out of him. That could be. That could be. Because like he, he starts the fight with this guy, and they're all pretty impressed. They're frightened by him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Shao, of course, is mad at him. It's like, man, you just cost us our job. What was the point of that, dude? <laughs> what, what do you earn doing this stuff? <laughs> well, you could earn a dollar. You could, but then Tan C shows up. It really is like the falling in love harp noise when it shows <laughs> when it zooms in on his face. It it is, and Tensi is one dapper motherfucker. I gotta oh, say, he is so cool. He's so cool that I can't tell if he's an asshole or not. Yeah, that's the weird thing. I kind of feel like maybe he is a little iffy, but he seems to be. I, he, he seems like a potential endpoint for our boxer from Shantung. It seems like what Ma could be if he continues down this path. And whether that's a good or bad thing is in the eye of the beholder, I suppose. Well, I mean, it basically becomes Ma's stated goal. Yeah, exactly. So I love his style this first time he shows up. This is when he's in that all-brown riding outfit with oh, an yeah. orange shirt. He's got that, he's got like the cigarette thing and he's got the... Um... Huge uh, ivory cigarette holder. Yeah. Uh, one one we'll see quite a bit of, and one that Ma will copy, but his isn't as big. Not quite. And that kind of feels pointed, too, that like it's specifically much smaller. And he doesn't use it as well. No, he doesn't. But he, <laughs> I do notice, I did notice later on, he was very much trying to use it in the exact same way Tan C does. Absolutely. No, I know exactly where you're talking about, too, because mm-hmm. they have a few scenes where they both do it and you see Ma do it not as cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like two scenes back to back. So you can't miss it. Yeah. Yeah. So Tansy, he says, all right, you clean the carriage and he tosses them a dollar. He bends down to pick it up and Tansy just starts messing with him because he's like, all right, we'll take the dollar. But then he's like hey, check out this really nice fucking watch I got. It cost me a whole lot of money. You want to fucking take it from me? <laughs> if you so, can yeah. take it, you can have it. Right. 
But Ma's like, well, pff, that would be stealing because they're, they're doing a meet cute. Like blushing, totally like, oh, I can't take from you, though. And I feel like th- this is one of the points toward Tansi not being a good guy. He's a bad mentor. He says, come on, who doesn't steal in Shanghai? Mm. Yeah, that, there's, there is that. Because, like, he and, still has his honor and stuff. He tells his two goons to step back so he can fight him one-on-one. And he is also uh, dealing in opium. Yes, that is pretty key. That hasn't come up quite yet, but he has, like, a major opium deal coming down the pipe. And there's, like, a big weapons deal later on that's going on somewhere around there, too. And I don't know exactly his involvement in it, but... (laughs) That never comes up again, because, uh, well... Everybody ends up fucking dead! (laughs) (laughs) It's not allowed to take place. Nope. So, yeah, he he fights him one-on-one, which is another thing that Ma will really stick to. He likes to do the big, I'm the only guy fighting. I'll make all of my guys stand back and I'll do the fighting. Even though Xiao isn't nearly as competent, but he kind of knows a little kung fu. He can fight a, He can fight goons. Yeah, he's regularly capable. Uh, he, he manages himself in the one or two fights we see him in. Most of the time, he is not in the fights. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, that, that's where he wants to be because it's a lot yeah. safer there. Well, and it's also where Ma wants him to be. Ma doesn't want him to be hurt. He seems to be the only person other than Tensi that Ma cares about. Right. Uh, so, you know, they, they have their little frolic match. And they're really well matched. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ma is super respectful of him. It's like, hey, I, I'm totally hot for you. I mean, I, I think you're a great <laughs> martial artist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the thrusts of your uh, fist are really... Um, I, I can't turn it into, into innuendo yet. I didn't think it through good enough. But yeah, I, I do feel like there is a weird element of... I don't... This is the thing that I do not think is intentional. I don't think there is supposed to be this sort of element of romance between Ma and Tansi, but it really feels like they're in sort of this. Well, not not in a relationship. It is just purely one sided. Ma is head over heels in love with Tansi the whole movie. (laughs) It may not be intentional, but it's in there. It's in there. It seems to be the only thing he cares about from this point forward. Most of what he does seems to either be to either emulate Tansi, become Tansi, or just to be good enough to meet Tansi again as an equal. Mm -hmm. Or to impress him, or to help him, or, you know, yeah, basically he's living for Tansi at this point. Yeah, so Tensi, you know, he he dismisses his men. He says, all right, you guys keep the dollar. Uh, but Ma throws it theatrically away. He's like, he's walking away and he's like, wait, stop. And he throws the dollar into the street just to show him, like, I don't care about wealth. I don't need your filthy money. I also don't need the money for the services that I've actually performed. <laughs> well, I guess they haven't performed it yet. Ultimately, they they, well, not, they got stopped from performing it <laughs> twice. Yeah, but it, it seems like he's a worshiper of obsequious wealth. the The fact that Tansy has a lot of money is what drives him. He doesn't want one dollar. He wants lots of dollars. So one dollar is ugh, this is insulting to me. Yeah, um, I didn't see it that way 
when the scene was happening, but uh, knowing where the movie goes, yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. that's what it is. He, he's got kind of that prosperity gospel thing where it's like, yeah, I, you know, I, I can throw away this money because this money is just like small beans. I need the big money. So we, we need to do like the big score. And right now, you know, we'll, we'll send away for that tactical bath and we'll just keep putting in our time. Mm-hmm. So they they look through their clothes and they have no fucking money. They're totally flat broke. Shao finds 20 cents. <laughs> so he's going to treat them. You know, you had a dollar. Well, yeah, Shao's even like, man, you threw away that dollar. We don't have a money. We could like we could have eaten, but now we can't. We've got 20 cents so we can go to the tea room and there'll be music playing and you know that'll be kind of nice. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's the tea room where uh, <laughs> where the shit's going down. Yeah, there is some major shit going down. The axe gang with their sleeve axes have shown up, and a bloodbath is beginning. And when we say axe gang, um, from Kung Fu Hustle, completely, uh, these guys completely inspired the axe gang from Kung Fu Hustle. Hundred percent. Like I think the shot that they use, where all of them line up and. Uh, each of them drops an axe out of his sleeve into his hand to, like, jump into the melee. Like, they do that shot. It's so cool. It's so cool. And, like, it's, like, choreographed. And, like, it, it almost feels like interpretive dance at the beginning. Or, or like, no, not interpretive dance. Like, uh, like, like uh, West Side Story or, like, how I imagine West Side Story because I haven't seen it. Directed by uh, Robert Wise, who directed our second picture. No kidding. Yeah. That's what he won his first Oscar for. Oh dang! Uh, but yeah, it's it's a hell of a bloodbath. Like it's it's dance like it's very well choreographed. But yeah, people are getting chopped and sliced because everybody has knives and axes. There is red paint flying. I mean, blood flying everywhere. <laughs> but it's it's interesting to see this weapon play. We're used to just people fighting each other with fists. A lot of the time, that's still pretty bloody. Yeah, um, sometimes they'll they'll pick up a staff. Uh, every now and then there will mm. be a legendary weapon, but the thugs don't get weapons. Yeah, it's rare to see just a whole bunch of dudes all with weapons just chopping and slashing at each other. And a whole bunch is not an understatement either. The fight scenes, uh, I briefly mentioned it before, but they're huge. They're so, there's just so many people participating at once. Mm-hmm. And, and like this one, there's, two different bosses here with their own separate gang guys to just massacre this other gang. And I think they're attacking Tan C's men, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's Tan C who currently controls the tea house and right. they're trying to muscle him out. Yeah. Trying and, to, they almost succeed. Well, they kind of do succeed. Uh, it's just that someone else fills the gap. Right, right. Oh, oh, that's because I always kind of wondered, I I thought I missed the detail where it's like, why does 10C give it to... Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So there, there's the dude who has the knife. He's one of the main baddies. The the four champions, as the, they're called. More like the four mini-bosses. They're, the they're four mini-bosses. Yeah. Uh, well, like, one of them is pretty important, but, like, the other three never do much of anything. Yeah, I mean, Knife Guy's whole thing is just getting his ass kicked every time he appears on screen. Yeah, like, he 
recuperates, shows up again, gets beaten to shit, and then has to come back and gets beaten to shit again. <laughs> it's like one arm gets break, broken, and then the next time he breaks the other arm. No, I think it's the same arm both times. The second time he just dislocates it, and he intentionally does it just to be like, well, I'm going to show you, last time, that was what happened. <laughs> Not the knife guy ever learns. No. Uh, and at this first part, you know, he seems like he's going to be a major bad guy. He... He's standing he's in the corner with his arms crossed. Yeah, and Ma's going by, and he just tosses... Well, like, a guy gets tossed at him, and he knifes him, and he throws the dead body into the street, which hits Ma. And, of course, he's affronted. It's like the third time he's been affronted by something this morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, come on, can't I just get a break? Well, again, it's just he's such a fragile snowflake. Every single time he goes down the street, something in, in, encounter, he encounters something that makes him have to have a fight. He has he to has destroy to whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, the entire two gangs, the sword gang and the axe gang, completely surround and attack Ma. And he's able to he's able to kick the shit out of them. Yeah, he, he uh, rips them up. And and there's the one of the other four champions is nearby. Uh, well, two of them. We've got Zhang, who's the axe guy, who hasn't really done anything yet. He was just like sitting with a knife guy whose name I can't recall just yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's somewhere in my notes. I'll get to it. All right. Uh, but it's it's the two of them hanging out on the corner, and then Fan Ajan, who's the guy with the big scar on his face. He looks like he's kind of cosplaying a like a mafia don. Mm-hmm. It's not a very good scar. It does not look very realistic. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It looks like he's like it looks like he uh, got some chocolate syrup running down his cheek. Yeah, and he's inside saying he's taking over the tea house uh, from the the uncle guy who I don't know if he ever has a name. Yeah, it doesn't matter. He doesn't. The uncle does nothing no he he's just there to be the guy who's being terrorized but tan or fan rather he's interrupted because a bunch of underlings come in is like there's this guy who came out of nowhere and is just ripping up all our dudes <laughs> fan's like okay well i'm a mini boss i'll deal with it yeah and he he steps out and the second he steps out okay yeah it's brother lee or yeah brother lie maybe l-i Oh, the knife guy. Knife guy, yeah. So Brother Lee, I think. And as he's coming out, Ma breaks his arm. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the instant he he steps out to see it happen. (laughs) Yep. And and I seriously thought that Brother Lee would be, like, a major badass. Because, you know, if you're in a kung fu mass fight and you're just standing in the corner with your arms crossed watching, especially if you have a smarmy grin on your face... Mm-hmm. Of course you're going to be a badass. Right. And he has most of these guys. Like, half of this gang are his dudes. Uh, but yeah, it's... it doesn't work out for him. No. So the, the, the Scarface guy shows up and he says he's the head of the four champions. Which Fan. is not even true. But I mean, I guess he kind of is. It's just there's a guy who they, the, the four of them all report to. So it's not really that meaningful of a position. It's really not. But he gets in a fight with Ma, of course. Mm-hmm. They they punch each other's fists, 
they do that anime thing. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and and uh Fan's fist is just like destroyed. Yeah, it's wrecked. Uh the the two of them punch each other's fist and Ma wins. <laughs> like they're they're both their fists are together and then after you know a few seconds Fan is sent flying backwards. It's very wuxia. It's so good. And he's basically like, "All right, come on guys, let's get out of here." Yeah, we, we better retreat. There's there's no point to deal with this today. I think this guy might be a protagonist. Might be. And so Tan sees guys, they're all pretty bloodied and chopped up. Uh, but they've been rescued, essentially. And Ma and Shao, they go inside to the tea house. And everyone's like, the fuck? Did these guys just, where Where did these guys come up? come from this dude just beat up three of the four champions <laughs> <laughs> and their gangs and their whole gangs single-handed because <laughs> yeah it's it's important to note each champion kind of has like their own mini gang yeah except lu Poo, who does not do anything and really seems like he he seems like he's going to be uh, you know, in the the episode of The Simpsons where they deal with the Yakuza, there's that guy in white who's just standing there doing nothing the whole movie. You think he's yeah. going to be that guy? Yeah, I was I was looking for him in the last fight and I didn't see him. He's the first one to get taken out. Oh, yeah. oh okay. <laughs> he's going to be the end boss, I thought. Yeah, no, he is who Ma immediately goes for because he's supposed to be uh, the tough guy that he hasn't beat yet. Oh, yeah, because he is the only one who, well, yeah. I mean, he's taken out three of the four goons already. Well, and he takes them all out again in this fight. But, yeah. <laughs> so this is where we see that Jin, uh, Jin uh, Langzi, I think. Anyway, Jin, the daughter of the owner of the tea house, or the, the niece, rather. It's it's always a niece. or they're, they're, it's, never... yeah, it's always an uncle. <laughs> it's like the Disney thing. Yeah. Hmm. So she's obviously a cultural thing. I don't know. I think it's maybe more just a 50s and 60s thing because <laughs> you do a lot of that in those family relationships are weird in these movies. But yeah, uh, she's kind of smitten with Ma. Uh, oh, yeah, here. The, uh, the love interest. We we see her look at him like he looks at Tan Si. So we know that <laughs> she's kind of oh. he he. he he so heroically helped save the tea house uh, from these thugs, but not so. <laughs> not so at all. She's <laughs> she's reading something entirely into his uh, motives that is not there. Yeah, he wasn't trying to save the tea house from thugs. He just wanted to be at the tea house in peace and quiet, and the thugs jumped him and you know he was he triggered let this stand. He, <laughs> he was triggered he walked by and this man this dude triggered him he had to go <laughs> so the 10 C's guys come in you know the couple of them that weren't really badly hurt and these guys kind of become his guys sort of these two oh okay yeah yeah i think i think they're like hey man thanks and he's like i didn't do it for you i did it for me <laughs> <laughs> You did it for Tansy. Oh, no, you wouldn't have done it for Tansy because he doesn't know that's his gang yet. Yeah. And they they're like willing to give him money. It's like, I don't want it. I, I feel like Shao again should be like, hey, remember the last 20 cents we had to come here on this? The dollar you threw away. 
can we just have some of this money so we can actually eat today? We've been through a lot already. We we did perform a service for this money. We've been out of bed for an hour and you've gotten us in three fights. Come on. <laughs> but, oh my god, it's been like an hour for them. Yeah, it's nuts. We we got into an infi- entire fight with an axe and sword gang. You beat these dudes called the Four Champions. Can we just have breakfast? <laughs> Man. So Tansy's guys are like, you know, Boss Yang, he's going to be coming for you. You messed up his dudes. I thought Boss Yang was going to be tough. (laughs) He really seems like he's supposed to be. Or that he seems like he's some sort of tactical genius, but no. I I also (laughs) thought Boss Yang was a tactical genius. Uh, Boss Yang is kind of a joke, actually, but you don't realize that until near the end. Right. There's something very anti-authoritarian about this whole movie where anyone who's in any sort of level of authority is proven to be incompetent at some point. Yep. So we meet Boss Yang, uh, the four champions, or the three of the four champions are consulting with him. The other guy is obviously just standing in the background, who seems like he's going to be really impressive later, but won't be. <laughs> I, I can just imagine him, uh, like, uh, hard taken to Hawaii, just constantly cracking his knuckles every second. Yeah, or like, if it were a little bit, well, I guess it would have to be a fair amount further in the future, but like constantly cocking a shotgun. <laughs> right? He would. <laughs> so uh, Fan has the the idea that they're going to use the whole time, although Boss Yang kind of pretends that he didn't say it and then ultimately will claim it as his idea, where, where he says, well, we'll use Ma as a pawn against Tan Si. Right, whereas, but what Boss Yang... Like, that is what they do, but what Boss Yang says, he's just like, well, you know, these guys, it feels like there's a protagonist, so maybe we should yeah. just chill out a little bit. Right. Uh, apologize to Tan C and go meet this new guy. Yeah, we will just go easy. This guy seems like he could be trouble. These guys rise and fall all the time. Lead characters come and go in this town. (laughs) (laughs) He's been a crime boss a long time, and he knows that the number one leading cause of death of crime bosses is drifters who are really good at kung fu. Yeah, he he knows a main character when he sees one. It's like, let's just get out of this guy's way. Uh, He'll self-implode in no time. We don't need to worry about it. He he doesn't really stick with his plan well enough, though. No. I kind of figured that it would be that he would be like, okay, guys, don't do a violence, and it would be the goons who do a violence anyway. But no, he, right? No, he, he's uh, still he he, he does doesn't not follow his own admittedly pretty good plan. Yeah, he seems like he makes sense. We have these scenes where he meets with his guys and he has this plan, and it's like, yeah, he seems to know what's up, and then he just blows it <laughs> <laughs> completely. Blows it. So. They they meet with Tan C. They're going to invite Tan C to dinner. And the four champions, you guys are all just going to have to apologize to him. Uh, and meanwhile, we've got this whole wrestling thing planned. There's this huge European guy we've hired. And I think it's going to be a real moneymaker. Oh, yeah, because nobody can beat the strong man. Right. And that scene, we, we haven't gotten to it yet. But when we get to it, that's kind of like Spider-Man's origin. Actually, yeah, it is, isn't it? 
yeah, there's a few Spider-Man things in this that I was thinking about as it went along. And his whole great power and great responsibility, he has a thing like that with Shao. It oh, just yeah. it does it comes off more self-serving from him. <laughs> and this is also where they mentioned that yeah, they they have this big opium deal coming, or rather, Tan C has a really big opium deal coming that they'd kind of like to have. <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe we'll be nice and Tennessee will just let us get in on this somehow after we tried to massacre all his guys. Well, That's I what think the apologies for. Yeah, I think they they're not really trying to get in with him on it. I think ultimately they are still planning on killing him and taking the opium deal somehow. They just this one didn't work. So we we got to keep jockeying. Right. So Yang does advise uh that uh, I, I think it's maybe Zhang that he tells. I, it must be Zhang because it's Zhang who goes to talk to him at the hostel. He says, go make friends with Ma. <laughs> and, and I thought that the scene that happened after that was Zhang misinterpreting uh, the instructions to be like, go make friends with him. <laughs> but it turns out, no, that was the instruction. Yeah, like, really, go go make friends with him, because uh, we don't want to deal with the protagonist. Uh, and Lu Pu is like, come on, I know I can fight him. It's like, you just wait for your moment. <laughs> you have to be the end boss. But no. There, there's no. a lot of but no. In <laughs> yes, there is. Master Yang's, pl- or Boss Yang's plan does not work on, like, any level except for the ambush he does later on. Yeah, it's weird. It seems like it should work, and then it just doesn't. Because uh, he, he never really commits properly. No, no. He he does a lot of opium, this guy. <laughs> that might be part of it. So, Shao uh, and Ma are having some street noodles with the 20 cents that they have, I guess. And Shao is kind of uh, holding his feet to the fire. It's like, man, why do you idealize the rich so much? I don't understand it. Do you not get that you're poor like me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, one day his day will come. Yeah, I mean, it's very clear that he's driven by this desire for wealth and status. There, There isn't really a moral element to the quasi-heroic things he's doing. It's more as a means to an end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I just think it's a really interesting way for a protagonist to function because ultimately he's not a bad guy. Like he does stick to some basic morals. It's just most of the stuff he does not care about. It, it really doesn't phase him. Mm-hmm. So there is there is a parallel uh, scene where Yang and Tan Si are dining in a really fancy restaurant, like in comparison to the two of them having their street noodles. Oh, yeah. Yang and Tan Si dining. Yeah, and Tan Si's got, like, his beautiful women. Yeah, both of them, they're surrounded by a bunch of classy ladies on each arm. And, you know, they're really friendly. These guys are professional rivals. He accepts the apology. And, And he even says, like, something to the effect of, hey, no... I understand there's a protagonist on the scene. We should just kind of put our rivalry on hold for now. Right. This is the business we're in. Uh, Again, it's clear that Tansy is also not driven by morals. Uh, It's totally just a business for him. What I love, though, is when Boss Yang is like, so about that opium or yeah, the opium deal about that opium deal. 
that's coming up. And Tansy's <laughs> like, I thought we weren't going to talk about business anymore for the next bit. Yeah, we, we're not supposed to be talking at business over dinner. And he does his troll face. And yeah, he's like, <laughs> does, is it just me or did the music like, did it zoom in on Boss Yang and kind of go wah, 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 wah? Something like that. It, it does a lot of like big reaction shots of people at times. It's right around here where I was like, maybe Boss Yang isn't as smart as I thought he was in the scene before. Which it turns out to be true. <laughs> yep. So Zhang has headed to the hostel and he's looking for Ma. And Xiao's like, I don't know where he is. He's out looking for ladies, apparently. <laughs> With what money, I wonder. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Like, if, if your goal is wealth and status, you should have taken... You should have taken the, uh, I guess he just doesn't want handouts. I, you know, I think that's what it is. He doesn't want handouts. It's true. He definitely does not want handouts. And I think it's also just small amounts that these are just pittances and it's not going to make him wealthy getting a handout, but it's an insult rather than a, a progress. He, he doesn't want to progress to it. He wants to immediately jump up a level. That, tra yeah, that tracks. <laughs> that sounds right. But of course, someone runs and tells him that, you know, Zhang has shown up with the Axe Gang at the hostel. And Ma thanks the dude. He's like, when my life gets better, I won't forget my poor fellow men. Right. What do you think? D does he keep that promise? Um, which dude is it that he says this to? Like, what, I mean, what happens to that dude? I don't know. Who knows? He's just some bando <laughs> from... He probably comes one of the men and probably gets chopped down in the final fight because there's not a lot of survivors of that final fight. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't know. He sort of forgets his poor fellow man, but some of them come along with him, I guess. Yeah. Uh, there's sort of an entourage thing to it. <laughs> that's that's really what it feels like. Yeah. Like, just the different hangers-on who... Uh, and, yeah, Zhao becomes like his chauffeur. Yeah, he just becomes his chauffeur. He kind of stops being his friend and becomes his employee. It's sort of weird. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I don't think he uh, keeps his promise. Yeah, I kind of don't think so either. So Ma comes in to the hostel, of course, ready to fight. But all of them, there's a show of peace. They all plant their axes in a table. Oh, was that what that was? I thought that was meant to be intimidation. I, I think it was meant to show that none of us have our axes. Like, we've disarmed ourselves. Because it's to show, okay. like, we're, we're, we're not here to fight you. Uh, notably, we see Zhang's has this beautiful dragon carving in the hilt. Oh, yeah, and his is, uh, his is shinier, too. Yeah, his is special. It's like a legendary weapon, and it will be important later on. It'll be really prominent in one of our later fights. Oh, is that the one that... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one. I mean, it has the really elaborate uh, uh, handle, so it's, it's got right. to be one. Right, it has yeah. to be that one, yeah. So Zhang, basically, he's trying to hire him. Like, I want you to take out Tan C for us, basically. You know, we, we'd like you to uh, work with us, and you could just, like, sort of squeeze out Tan C from this area. And this is where Ma's like, well, listen, even though he's really rich and out of my league and so great, <laughs> I consider him a friend. So I couldn't possibly do anything against him. 
And so the, all of them, you know, they they take their axes and leave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the 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 keeper of the flop house, the the guy who threw them out and was like tripping over them before and was real dick, he yeah. offers him a free upper room. So now he has status. Oh yeah, and it's like this big show of him going up the stairs. Right, and everyone's like, "You've never been fucking." charitable to anyone before you jerk wad what's this about just trying to butter up this guy who could beat the shit out of you like yeah obviously (laughs) you might be able to protect me from the axe gang truly and it's it's literally him going up in the world with him ascending the stairs the the long shot of him rising above everyone else yeah because because, yeah, it's him going up the stairs with his back to everybody else. And you can just see, like, their heads below. Mm-hmm. Like, just a, a very literal shot of him rising up and them all remaining where they are. So next we have the wrestling challenge. A Russian muscle man. <laughs> kind of looks like a cross between Mel Gibson and Andre the Giant. Yeah. Uh, the, the scene kind of reminded me of, like, a really extended and elaborate version of the bolo scene from five fingers of death you know bolo young as a chinese hercules oh yeah 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 but this one's pretty long because we have to see the strong man beat up like solidly beat up like three guys before brother ma gets in there although none of them are all that impressive it's it's like the same thing because in that other scene, there's at least one or two people beat down by Bolo. This one, you know, you get three or four of them, and they're all, like, full fights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Brother Bivin comments, it's like, ooh, this one knows Kung Fu, I wonder how he'll do. Right, because the first dude can't hurt him at all. <laughs> like, yeah. He's punching him full on, and the guy's just standing there. Uh, he's got really goofy fake facial hair in some shots. Like, I think they just painted gray on. Maybe they had to do some pickup shots and he had shaven more recently. (laughs) So they just put gray paint on, I think. Oh, interesting. I I never, I never noticed that. I thought it was just, I didn't notice the paintness. I thought it was just, it depends. I think some of the shots, it's real stubble, but some of them, it just looks like paint. It really does not look real at all. It looks like just gray paint that he has on his face. Uh, they they do use a lot of uh, painted on facial hair in these kung fu movies. They do. Most of the time, it's semi-well hidden, but, you know, in the high def, you're going to see it sometimes. Yeah, that's okay. So this whole thing is Lee... His uh, the the knife guy. It's his scam. He's still healing from the broken arm. Yeah. Uh, and he's like backstage, and he peeks out and sees Ma in the audience, and is very alarmed. But also, Ma sees him seeing him, and like gives him a real smirk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh man, my intimidating knife guy gang leader routine doesn't work on this guy. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a problem. And this is where the guys are sort of building up a myth about Ma that's totally untrue. Because <laughs> they're saying, oh, I, I heard they've given him the tea house territory and that he won't take any protection money. He's refused it. That is None not this true. Is, this, <laughs> this thing has not happened. It hasn't happened yet, and he will take that protection money when it's offered. <laughs> 
And they're like, oh, well, I mean, he must not be in it for the money. He's just watching. He's not bothering with a challenge. And he didn't take that protection money. It must be something else that drives him. (laughs) It is something else that drives him. But well. Yeah, it's funny because it seems like they're sort of audience surrogates at this point. They're like, well, I mean, our guy seems pretty moral and he's driven by that. It doesn't seem like he's driven by money at all. Like, oh, wait, no, there he goes. (laughs) No, it's true. At this point in the movie, I completely believe that he was like, no, I'm going to rise up the right way. I'm not going to take your dirty money. But no, it's more. I'm not going to take your handouts or, or your insulting money. Yeah. So they they have one dude who has good kung fu. He comes out and he takes on the Russian muscle man. And he's holding his own mm-hmm. for a bit. Yeah. Uh, but then the guy picks him up and just throws him onto a bench in the audience. It's very wrestling. You know, it feels WWF the, the oh, way this guy throws guy, people. Yeah. Oh, totally. It does. And then the way the guy like rolls and rolls to make sure that he smashes through two benches <laughs> that are like too far away. So he didn't get thrown onto him. So he has to like do extended somersaults. Yeah. And it just the, the use of chairs and benches and the body slams, like it really does feel like a, a WWE sort of event. I think and this the, would predate the WWE. Well, yeah, definitely. This is 1972. This predates the WWF. Or, well, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, uh, none of them. Like, this is well before any of them, but it has that same sort of feel. It's it's weird. It's proto-wrestling. Although, oh, yeah, you know, there's all the, those wrestling leagues in this era. Just no oh, that's true. major affiliated one. Well, yeah, the, the Russian strongman is even a heel. The audience is booing him. Mm-hmm. Like, no, you cheated, even though he actually didn't. No, he's just way too big for any of them to conceivably fight. And the announcer comes out and he's like, people, know your limits. <laughs> <laughs> know your limits, but please continue to give us money so that you can challenge this man and get killed. Right. Well, there. I, I think the idea is don't come in and try to really hurt this guy because you know you can't properly do it and then he'll be forced to demolish you. He's yeah. like... This Russian has traveled everywhere and is completely unbeatable. And that is the moment where Ma's like, unbeatable, eh? <laughs> See about that. I this gotta prove myself. Notice me. Well, he, he has to prove himself. Anytime there's a situation in which he could prove himself, I mean, he better do it. Well, of course. Don't, uh, you don't move up by standing still. And backstage, Lee sees him coming and was like, ah, shit. He gets all his knife guys together in a huddle. <laughs> Uh-oh, get ready. And he he whoops the Russian muscle man's ass. The yep. audience is so into it because he's a heel. Oh, yeah. You need the underdog from, uh, you know, from the faraway uh, backcountry town to beat the big bad foreigner. Well, yeah, especially because he's a Russian foreigner, too. You know, he he's. The, oh, yeah, that's a whole thing. Yeah. There, there's this stuff in the background of the stage. They're like these concrete things. I think they're supposed to be concrete anyway. They're obviously not actually made of concrete. They're clearly more lightweight material. I, the I way they're, they're fighting meant, with them. Oh, yeah. I think they're meant to be like super heavy weights. Yeah, I think so. Because they, they look like concrete. They have that sort of pattern on them, but I think it's painted on. <laughs> it's probably styrofoam. I believe it's styrofoam because there's that part where Ma throws it 
at the Russian muscle man and it just gouges open his leg really bad. Oh, yeah. And it ends the fight completely. Mm-hmm. And then all of the knife guys pour out of the backstage and they hustle everyone in the audience out except Shao, some random dude, and Ma. And in this fight, Shao's like trying to fight them with benches and stuff. Does okay. Yeah, he does totally decent. He's holding his own. They have knives. He just has benches and he doesn't get stabbed or hurt. Yeah, he's, a, he's above average. Better yeah. than most sidekicks. Right. He, he's totally able to hold on with the, the, the regular guys. Ma fights all the higher echelon dudes. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a perfectly good division of labor. Oh, yeah. And and this is where Ma pulls out a bamboo pole that was, like, holding up part of the stage, and we get some cool pole fighting action, which is rad. Yeah. And he, he gets a hold of Lee by the throat, and Lee obviously surrenders, like, oh, sorry, we, we were just trying to scam you out of the $20 you won. Here, we'll give you the 20 bucks. <laughs> we weren't even trying to scam you. We were actually hoping you wouldn't show up. Yeah, we you, you just ruined our business. We were trying to scam all these other people. We we didn't think you'd turn up. He's like, yeah, well, I'm going to have to dislocate your arm just for tax. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, and then they cuss to them celebrating at the tea house where he does invite all of our poor friends. Like he, he tells Shao to go invite all the people from the hostel for their tea house celebration. Oh, yeah, because he just, he just got 20 bucks. That's huge money. That's big money. But then he immediately sells out <laughs> before he even goes to the tea house. Because <laughs> he goes across the street and he looks in the window and there's an ivory cigarette holder, kind of like Tan C's. Kind of. Like, well, take that. <laughs> but, but not as cool. Not as long and not as cool and not no. as girthy. No, no. Uh, all of those things for sure. And then he hires a rickshaw to take him there. Yeah. And then he, he's like doing like the the lazy, like the I'm above it all. This is my kingdom. Tan C pose as he's sitting on the rickshaw. Oh, so studied. He is immediately trying to do all of Tan C's moves completely. <laughs> he, he's not done with his invitation either. No. So he gets back to the tea house and everyone's like, boss ma. And oh, he likes that. That's cool. "Mm, Boss ma. I like the sound of that. (laughs) (laughs) So at this point, I thought he was getting corrupted by the fame and the wealth. Now I think, no, I think that was his goal from the get go. It was. It's weird because it seems like he is immediately corrupted when they give him the money. But it does sort of also seem that. It's exactly what he was expecting. And it's like, oh, well, this is the wealth I've always expected coming to me. Yeah, no more $1 bullshit. Yeah, because, like, it's it's a really great contrast to us having previously heard the bad guys saying, oh, I heard he passed up the protection money and refused it with great righteousness to have him then (laughs) actually get it presented like – oh, yeah, I want that. That's that's so rad. Look at all this money, guys. Oh, man. (laughs) actually handouts rule yeah damn i mean this is real money this isn't just a dollar (laughs) where do you suppose the bad guys rumor came from 
I have no idea. I, I mean, I assume it's just the standard thing that happens when a protagonist comes through town. Oh, so they're just like, yeah, I'm just you know, he's doing this the thing, thing that probably happened. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, this is how it always works. Uh, but it didn't work out this way. It's like, oh, uh, it's like, oh yeah, the, the the tea house in the area around it belongs to you now, because uh, Tan say Tan C says he can't collect it anymore because it doesn't belong to him. Yeah, he, so his guys got driven out. Yeah, and Ma very much likes the idea. It's like, oh, well, this is Tan C's territory, but now it's my territory. That makes me kind of like Tan C. <laughs> <laughs> well, this could be maybe Senpai will notice me with a few, doing af, after doing a few more of these. Yeah, so he immediately accepts, uh, which we see Jin being alienated by, even though, again, he has not acknowledged her in any way. <laughs> Brother Ma... I don't think has ever interacted with Jin in the movie. Uh, there's no, there's a bit at the later on, but not really. Well, no, it's more him imagining it, which is really weird. It, it's like all of a sudden he remembers, but it doesn't seem like he's all that interested in her either. We'll, we'll have to talk about that scene when we get there. Cause that's a really peculiar scene. Yeah. I forgot about that until you brought it up actually. Yeah. That's, that's a little out of place. So he's treating all of his poor folks to a feast, all of the dudes from the place. So it, it is sort of an entourage thing. He is kind of still sticking by his people, but obviously Jin is just being ignored because she's just collateral damage. She's not part of his gang. So he's like, well, I mean, you're, you're not part of my criminal enterprise, so it sucks to be you, lady. You're just a civilian I saved. Yeah, and they're Not like even really on purpose. Right. They they want her to sing for them and she won't because she feels offended and she runs off and they're mad that she won't smile and she takes off and he's just kind of thinking about Tan C and what the great situation <laughs> that he's been in. And one of the other guys is like, Hey, should we go get her, drag her back here? It's like, What? Like, oh, no. What? I, I don't care. Yeah, I, I she doesn't I'm, want to, who gives a shit? I'm not thinking about girls right now. <laughs> uh, I do love, though, the uncle is saying to Jin, like, hey, look, this is just the guy who's in charge of us now. This yeah. Is what we do. Yeah. He he uh, literalizes the thing I'm saying. And it's like, well, I mean, these protagonists come and go through here all the time. We've seen it again and again. Bosses are just short term. We pay them. He'll go away. Another guy will come in and we'll pay him. That's just how it works here. Yeah, I love it. He like lists off the previous bosses they had. It's like, okay, it was Boss Ma, then it was Boss Ted C before that. And then he lists like a few other people before that. It's like, it's just the same stuff. Come on, get used to it. Yeah, and these people aren't born here. Like, they moved here. We know they go back to their hometown at the end. So. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> it's not even a long period of time. I... I'd like to imagine this turf, all this turf just changes hands every couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, it seems to. So meanwhile, Yang is back at his swanky pad waiting on a big shipment of guns that will never arrive within the movie's <laughs> runtime. Uh, Zhang fixes Lee's arm, of course. He puts it back in the socket. Mm -hmm. uh, so Ma, now that he's getting money paid out to him, he gives three dollars to each of his men. And, you know, that's not bad. 
you know, he's doing distribution of uh, redistribution of wealth. He's doing sort of Robin Hood thing. Is it how much? Well, I guess it's trickling. Yeah, no, it's trickling down. You're right. Uh, yeah, and then he buys a really fancy carriage, exactly like Ten C's. <laughs> exactly like Ten C's. <laughs> the co- the carriage maker even comments on it, like, oh, "This must be the boss of that. This must be the boss of this area now." Right. This he, week, he literalizes it again. He says, "Some rise and some fall every day in Shanghai." He's <laughs> like, "Well." Nouveau riche. We'll we'll see him come and go. Yep. Like it, it's a theme here there, through a bunch of these sequences where we see all of these really low level people and citizens as well as uh, the henchmen on the bad guy side. They they all know they're working class and bosses come and go and nothing changes under any of them. Yeah, I mean the end of the movie has everybody dead and the stat and like you still don't feel like the status quo has changed in the slightest. No, I mean, it's clearly going to reassert itself. You've got a power vacuum now, but there's people waiting to fill that vacuum, of course. Oh, sure there are. People who are smart enough to go not get involved in this particular shit. Right, I mean, Ma didn't even intentionally fill a power vacuum. It's just one was there, and he happened to occupy it, and they're like, here's the money. They're like, oh, cool, I guess I'm a boss now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he does... He does retain some morals because there, there's the sequence where his guys, his new guys who have sort of all developed from out of nowhere. Some of them seem to have previously been 10 C's guys. There's those yeah. two main dudes who are always hanging around in black robes. Oh, yeah. The uh, the real hanger honors and yeah. also kind of like the corrupting influence. No, man. Yeah. This is how protection gang. This is how protection rackets work. You see, they're paying to protect they're paying you to protect them from us. Yeah. Well, he tells them to knock it off because they're they're going to beat up this shopkeeper who couldn't afford to give them the money this week. And he's like, man, if he doesn't have it, he doesn't have it. What's beating him going to do? Like, look, he can pay it when he has it. Yeah. Now, but, what, what are we going to do? Yeah, exactly. But not like, a, oh, no, he not a debt forgiveness or anything. Just get it to us when you get it. Yeah. I am and, still doing a protection racket. Yeah, and, and the the guys, like, this, this is where those two dudes, who are sort of Yakuza, I guess, they they got the black and gray lo- robes specifically, which a lot of the other bad guys have, too. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah, I thought he, I thought those two defected from the bad guys at first. Right, because they were, they were, I think they were in that initial battle, but maybe kind of hanging back so that they didn't get slashed. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. I'm not sure. But this is where, like, they're sort of advising him on issues of being a boss. And they mention also that Jin has stopped coming in to work, which is like our second mention of her, that she's not doing stuff. And they're like, well, should we teach her a lesson to, you know, come into work and be here for this tea house that you own? Because she's kind of one of the attractions here. And he's like, no, no, leave her alone. (laughs) Jin, who's that? I don't give a shit. It's like, I, I don't really know what you're talking about, but this thing about the poor, I mean, we can't squeeze money out of them. They literally don't have more money than exists in this territory. The problem is the territory, guys. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a casino over there. Right. And there, he says specifically, like, well, it's 10C to the West. I can't take that stuff. That's 10Cs. Yeah. doesn't belong yeah. to me. Yeah, he... he... 
he he won't give me kisses if I take his stuff. So the casinos, those are totally off limits. And they say, well, what about Kung Fu Lane over here? They make like 30 to 40 bucks a day. And like they've, they've previously mentioned that locally their whole tithe is five to six dollars total mm-hmm. for the tea house area. Wow, that's that's not, that's not a lot for a protection racket. It's not much. So the the thing is, Kung Fu Lane is extremely well protected. Uh, like that's Yang's gang. That, that's the axe people. That's the sword people. That's the whole four champions thing. Oh yeah, but you know who doesn't need to be afraid of the four champions? Yeah, ma. And who really likes a challenge? All that too. It's <laughs> <laughs> like. Well, yeah, they mentioned it's like, oh, no, two people went to try and take that territory before they died. Yeah, they got chopped up. I think one of them is one of the people mentioned as a previous boss of this area. Oh, OK. I didn't notice that. Quite be... possibly. I'm not Probably. sure. And yeah, he does a whole speech. It's like, all right, who's with me? There's a like a pause. And, Fine. <laughs> I'll go alone. And none of you can even come in with me. You just wait outside and watch me do it. You can come in when I'm done. <laughs> so he gets in the, the carriage and we see that Shao is now just the carriage driver. Yep. Uh, he At least he's not wearing cartoon rags anymore. No, he's in really fresh threads. He's got that really crisp white outfit. But uh, Brother Ma had said to the to Tansi's carriage driver before, like, why should I care about you? You're just a lowly coachman. Exactly. But it seems to be Xiao's choice that he does not want to be part of a criminal organization. And tending horses seems to be something he likes. So it seems like he has found a position that he's more comfortable in than being a part of a Yakuza gang. Honestly, chauffeur's not a bad gig, I don't think. No, I don't know. I don't know. But it feels like it wouldn't be. And he's a chauffeur for his friend, basically. He he yeah. only occasionally has to deal with those other jerks. Yeah, but he's also now become his friend's employee. Yes. And here, like, I think it's still sort of uncertain here because they, they still seem to be on more or less equal footing. There's a specific point later where he is insulted. Mm, uh, yes. But here he's like. Do you, do you want my backup? I can come in with you. You know, this is a real hell of a situation you're getting into. And this is the first time that Ma's like, look, you're an honest man. You're not a gangster. And I don't want you involved with this stuff. It's sort of a great power comes great responsibility things like you hanging around with me is going to get you killed. And I don't want yeah. that to happen. Yeah. He's always like saying, hey, this life isn't for you. If this thing I'm doing fails or if this plan falls through or whatever you need to take X amount of money and run back to your village. Yeah, every situation he gets into from this point forward, he goes to Shao and's like, look, if I come out of this in a casket, which is completely possible, I want you to just take all the money and go back home. So Ma goes into the Hong Fu Casino in Kung Fu Lane. He's like, I need to talk to the boss, which happens to be Mr. Zhang, uh, the axe guy. Yep, he comes out and is like, Oh, good. I don't have to talk to a servant. I actually get to speak to the main guy. Yeah. Uh, what luck. I, I can just have the, this dude come right to me. I don't have to go through a bunch of bullshit and mini bosses here. This is perfect. Status rules. Yeah. And he says, listen, skimming money off the poor was never my intention, becoming a boss. 
<laughs> so why don't you let me take over the casino or yeah take yeah the casino yeah he's like look boss yang that dude has so much money why don't you just let me take over the casinos and brothels i i could probably do a pretty good job of it you kind of suck i think <laughs> and of course i've beaten you every time we've ever fought yeah and zhang fuming right <laughs> like, yeah Look, I don't want to disturb my clientele, so why don't you speak with me outside? And we see just dozens of guys with axes getting into position around him. <laughs> like, all of the axe gang are outside. The street's clear, like it's a western. Like, someone shouts like, oh, Omar coming, yo, and everybody. Just, <laughs> Omar. Yeah. Axe hit gang the here. Yeah, axe gang, shit. Get out of here. And the knife guys turn up, too. It's reinforcements. Uh, and also Shao and Ma's guys. Like, they all show up, but they're just waiting outside the gates, of course. <laughs> well, let's face it. Shao's gang, or uh, Ma's gang is no axe gang. No, because, yeah, immediately Ma just fucking starts tearing through all of these dudes. Yep. And messengers go to tell Yang, like, there's some shit going down at the casinos. <laughs> <laughs> and... He's like, ah, oh, god damn it. Fuck. Look, go pull Zhang out of there. Rescue him. I just leave it be. I don't I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> We're supposed to be laying low because we've got this opium thing and this mythical weapon thing. Yeah, look, 10C is priority number one. We're dealing with that guy. He's a much bigger deal than this rando. Look, we'll get our turf back later. I don't care. <laughs> bosses rise and fall all the time turf changes hands maybe we'll get it back next month or the month after whatever yeah we, we we can play the long game we don't need to worry about it so he sends fan and fan shows up there and he's like currently in a duel with ma at that moment and yeah it's like stop it just stop this fight what are you doing and Shang's like, are you kidding me? This is my turf. I own this place. <laughs> yeah, no, Boss Yang says to just pull out. Yeah, he says, look, Ma, the turf is yours. Like, are you are you kidding me? You're giving my turf away? You <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> and then this is the moment, like, you know, they, they leave. But uh, those two black robe dudes are there outside and Shao is disrespected by them. Because they're they're all going to go in to celebrate him taking oh. over the casinos and brothels. Oh, yeah. They're like, no, you stay outside. Well, they don't even say you stay outside. Xiao is proudly about to walk in and like, yeah, I mean, I get to enjoy the riches as well because I've been the second in command guy all this time. And he starts to walk in and the two of them just push him out, out of the out of the way and go first. Like silently, they don't even talk to him. Like he no, is below yeah. their notice. Yeah, you're just a chauffeur. So we we see him being just like silently disrespected by those dudes, and Ma just not noticing because he's ascending another staircase, like literally. Oh, yes. <laughs> so Yang, meanwhile, uh, one of the there's an informant from Tan C's gang, his Judas. Yeah, he's got he's got a guy, a double agent, who's actually working for Yang. Yeah, it's kind of black test car vibes that they've got all these uh, guys in each other's organizations and everyone's like informing on everyone else. Oh, got all yeah. these ambushes planned. <laughs> well, 
we are going to charge $100 less for the opium. Yeah. And that's going to be the, the resolution to this whole thing. We, we just need to find out how much Tennessee plans to sell the opium for, and then we'll be <laughs> totally set. Yeah. So, yeah, no, they, they plan a big ambush for Tansy because they know that opium shipment's coming up. And this guy says he knows who the connect is so we can take out Tansy and then just jump into that power vacuum. Exact same thing that everybody's doing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. After all, the, the opium dealer is going to sell to somebody. So this is where we have that weird scene in the fancy restaurant where Ma gets fucking drunk as hell with those two hanger on dudes. Oh, yeah. And, like, he hallucinates that one of the girls is the girl from the tea house. Jin. Yeah. For some reason, even though he's shown no interest in her. He's, like, never really noticed her, and I'm not fully convinced that he knows what she looks like. So, yeah, this this is kind of weird. It kind of seems like maybe he just has to imagine a girl. So this is a girl that he's had some interactions with. <laughs> you know, it could be, like, the fanciest girl he's talked to it could be uh like she she is pretty and she is fancier than he was when he started that's true and she is a sort of emblem of moral purity like she is untouched by any of this she's kind of remained outside of it yeah yeah and and offended by the the guy that she thought was the hero just being the same as everyone else yeah uh, I really like the look of this location, uh, the, the way they have the lights outside the window. Mm. Like, I think it's supposed to be the words of like, it, it's I, I think it's a bunch of Chinese characters uh, as neon lights in each of the windows. But they're covered by shades. So it's like this pastel abstract lights throughout the background. It just looks really cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, one thing I wanted to talk about, but I don't hmm. know where it comes up. So I'll just shoehorn it in now sure sure the, seeing billboards around in a kung fu movie yeah well it it feels like it aligns it much more with like the for a few dollars more this seems like it's in that era well it, it is yeah uh but very different ways of industrialization obviously this is in the east whereas that's in the west but like far west versus far east yeah yeah much more history here and a lot more open space there. Mm-hmm. So this is where we see that Chow is just completely just the carriage driver now. He is a servant and he doesn't get to come in and have dinner and get drunk with the guys. Yeah. We just see him outside waiting with the carriage and who should show up? Uh, but Tan C, I love this, this such a great scene. scene. <laughs> Tan C has been absent for the movie from the movie for like an hour and a half. He has not had a scene <laughs> and he he walks up and he sees the the carriage that looks exactly like his carriage and he touches and like looks weirded out <laughs> mm-hmm. he's like this looks an awful lot like mine and Shao's like oh yeah no uh brother ma or sorry boss ma uh specifically requested it look identical to yours and Tans, he's like Huh. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah, that's weird. It's the first time we've seen him not smiling in the entire movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's creepy. Uh, he's inside. He'd probably love to see you. And like, yeah. Well, the thing about that uh, is, <laughs> I, think, uh, I don't want to see that he's got like this whole. 
brown riding suit and cigarette holder thing happening. Yeah. So inside we see Ma totally drunk, and this is where he's thinking one of the ladies is Jin. And then Tansy just leaves because one of his yeah. dudes shows up. I think it's the informant guy who I is might be. looking completely sus from the moment he arrives. Mm-hmm. He rushes off to Da Cheng, supposedly, although we know he won't reach Da Cheng. Nope. Because he's heading down the road and <laughs> three of the four champions and a bunch of their guys are disguised as farm workers on the road. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. They're all just like wearing gardening caps and stuff and just kind of yeah. turn their backs to the road. So it, he can't tell. Uh, please. I didn't realize that, uh, that this was part of the ambush. And I was like, wow, boss Yang really demoted these guys. <laughs> so they, they block the carriage with these two wagons full of cement bricks, which are probably styrofoam, just like the ones we saw earlier. Yeah. But you know, yeah, it's fine. Uh, and Tansi's second in command dude, like not the Judas guy, but just some rando, he's taken out with a throwing knife. Yeah. And the informant immediately stabs Tansi in the gut. And this is the cool Tansi scene. This is the scene where we see how fucking cool he is. Yeah, he's got a knife in his gut and bleeding profusely, and he's still kicking the shit out of these guys. Yeah, he has a huge wound, and uh, he just keeps on fighting through it. Another thing that our guy's going to copy. Oh, sh- yeah, that's right, because <laughs> I didn't even realize that parallel. Yeah. A- and his white shirt and pants are just going to get redder and redder. Right, he is completely dressed in white, and he has all this blood coming out of him here. So uh, it, he he's stabbed... And he just starts laughing at the informant for stabbing him. And I'm not sure of exactly what happens here, but it seems that he kicks him in the crotch, karate chops him on the head, and it kills him. <laughs> sure, I'll take it. I think uh, just the, the, the killer crotch shot is awesome. <laughs> and he jumps down out of the carriage and he smiles when he sees three-fourths of the champions all in disguise i do love seeing the scarface guy as like a farmer is pretty funny kind of looks more natural than his uh mafia don outfit mm-hmm. so tansy pulls the knife out of his own gut to use as a weapon to fight with <laughs> yep and he takes out all of the underlings uh every single one well no i think he leaves a few of them at this point, because the three champions, the three of the four champions, Fan, Zhang, and Li, are like, well, he's really badly wounded. He's dead for sure. Let's get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't, need, we don't need to follow up on this. Well, he is, like, forging a path of victory through all of these other guys. And it's like, well, I don't want to be here when he gets through the last of those dudes. But he'll probably die from his wound anyway. And th- they're right, ultimately. They're right. Because, uh, like, there's four guys left, and two of them already have wounds on their hands from him striking them uh, previously in the fight. So, you know, he faces off against the four of them, and they're looking at each other, and they just fucking run off. They're like, yeah, screw <laughs> this. One of my favorite things, always great when 
uh, a bad guy is like, eh, let's just get out of here. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> fight this guy. Maybe we should pick a fight with. It's just not seem like a good idea. You don't even have a name tag. Yeah. Uh, so let's get out of here, guys. <laughs> yeah. uh, and Tansy just sits down in the carriage and dies. You no, know, he he was mortally wounded. He was not okay. getting out of there. Nope. Thus, uh, another one rises and falls. Right. And also, like, our we're, we're going to need revenge for that our too. <laughs> re- revenge for the love interest. Oh yes. Because back at the restaurant, Ma comes outside and he learns from Shao, like Tensi was just here. You'll never believe it. It's like, oh my God, Tensi was here. We got to go see him right now. Let's follow. Going him. to Chang. Like, well, let's go to Chang. I, I'm an equal now. I've been itching to see him now that I'm on his level. Now that I have the same cool cart that he has. Yeah. I mean, he'll probably think that's so cool. <laughs> and Shao's like, eh, yeah, let's let's go go find him and we'll see what he says about that. <laughs> so they they obviously come upon the carnage, just oh, yeah. a, a, a huge ring of dead bodies around the carriage. And Not the last we'll see. No, and this is that part where Ma does the same move with the cigarette holder, where he moves it from one side of his mouth to the other, that uh, Tansy kept doing during the fight, just like this dramatic move. Oh, yeah, like very prominently, and then uh, Ma starts doing it here. Right, and it does not look as cool. It, it does not have the same cool energy to the way it's done. But Ma just doesn't have Tansy's charisma. He just doesn't. And I, I think it's really interesting. It's clearly intentional. Oh, like, definitely. It's, it, it, I, uh, it, it's obviously meant to be him being a bad copy, but like he's a better fighter. Ultimately, he has more skin in the game in a weird sort of way. Like ultimately, he just is so much more uh, driven in a weird sort of way. Yeah, well, well Tansy has risen high enough that he doesn't need to fight his own battles. Uh, that's true yeah yeah that is true so yeah and yeah also that it's hilariously smaller (laughs) (laughs) yeah like a third the size yeah and it's weird that he takes it that like he sits down next to him in the carriage and he takes his cigarette holder the bloody one out of his mouth i thought he was going to smoke it right there it really did seem like it right and but he, he takes does it later, doesn't he? He does. And and I think it's him. It, it's sort of symbolic of him becoming Tansy that like now that Tansy is gone, he is now taking Tansy's place. And now he has to defeat the bad guys who Tansy was against or the the other guys. Like they're not even bad guys necessarily from Tansy's point of view, but yeah, they are from the other. The other yeah. gang. Yeah, they're they're villains from Ma's point of view. Mm-hmm. So back at Yang's, everyone is like, a toast to evil, gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Uh, and they're, just going to smoke a shitload of opium. Yeah, we got you this. You weren't going to sell this. This was all for me. Yeah. And and they're making plans. It's like, well, now that Tan sees out of the way, let's deal with this Ma character. That's that's their big flaw. That was a, This is a big mistake. <laughs> it's like, no, we're... 
Yeah, because even Axe guy warns him earlier. It's like, hey, uh, now that Ma's got the inn and the casino, he's going to be a lot harder to deal with. Yeah. Which is exactly what Yang said at the beginning. It's like, if he gets power, he's going to be hard to deal with. Yeah. But and then they just, just forgot that. Well, they just kept kept letting him get power because it's like, well, I mean, we have this other thing going on. We can deal with it later. Uh, but ultimately, it gets out of hand. Should have waited till they got the weapon shipment. They really should have. Although I don't know how much how much good it would have done. Maybe because it's guns, right? I think yeah. they say specifically it's guns. But it was it was two months out. I recall the weapon shipment is two months out, and they weren't going to last two months. That's a long wait. So Yang's right, plan. Got a vengeful uh, brother yeah. after you. That's true. But yet Yang's plan is they're going to meet at this tea house, not the tea house, but a place called I think the Green Lotus, Green Lotus Tea House. Yeah. And he's like, it'll just be me and Lu Pu. And I was like, oh, what, what, how, he's really dangerous, though. I don't know. And it's like, well, you, you know, it's, sit in the tea house. I can't stop you. Yeah. Tea house is a free place to stay. You know, if you wish, you can sit in there. Wink, 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 wink. You just won't be coming in with me, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, OK, I see. I see. <laughs> Which I don't know why he's making this subterfuge talking to his guys about it because they're it's really a show they're of force guys. when they all turn up. Yeah. Yeah. They're his guys. You could be like, okay, go there and pretend you're customers for like two minutes. Yeah. So Ma, when he gets the message about it, it's like, well, I'm obviously walking into an ambush here. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Zhao, if I don't live through this. Yeah. Take a hundred dollars and go home. <laughs> this gangster life is just not for you. This is his real Spider-Man uh, great power and responsibility moment where he's like, look, these villains, they're going to target my loved ones. So you need to get out of here, man. Oh, yeah, that's true. It's weird that they haven't targeted Zhao yet. It is. But it's it's also interesting thematically, especially in this one, because we've seen this stuff with Tan C and his Judas guy. That in this business, it means that the people that you can trust and care about can't be around you. So you're kind of necessarily surrounded by these mercenaries with really questionable loyalties, like these two kind of shitty guys who jumped on. Yeah, exactly. Who knows what these guys would do going down the road? We don't really find out where their true loyalties lie. No, I mean, I don't think they have any. No. So I, I, it kind of is interesting to see him sending his one person he can trust away right after seeing this thing with Tansy being killed by a guy who was in his inner circle. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it does make sense if you want to protect your guys. So it's kind of like this the whole situation of being a gangster and getting involved in this is setting you up to setting yourself up to be betrayed. Right. It seems like it's a failing system every step of the way. Like everybody knows that bosses are short term. Mm -hmm. And I like this moment where after Xiao walks away or while Xiao is watching, walking away, Ma just takes a really long look at himself in a mirror. Mm. And like, hmm, yeah, I I have kind of come to this place where I've uh, driven away the only people who matter to me and uh, lost the love of my life. And (laughs) It's just time like, to go down. 
I was like, wait a sec, the girl's not dead. Oh, right, yeah, of course. He lost the love of his life. Yeah. So they meet at the Green Lotus Tea House, which this scene has to have been the inspiration for the House of Blue Leaves fight in Kill Bill Volume 1. So, oh, so this is is the fight. This is the end fight already. Yeah, and it's so huge. It's like a quarter of the movie. It's half an hour at least. Yeah. And it's one fight. It's just him versus like a hundred guys and mini bosses will just show up every like five minutes. It's mm. video, it rules. I was gonna it's say incredible. it's a video game, but video games are this. Yeah. Uh well and you know, it's the House of Blue Leaf sequence. It's just this huge rampage. Um and, so and I love brutal, so bloody. So bloody. It's so chaotic. Cause like we we see the regular operations of the tea house and then all of the four champions gangs roll in. They just completely take over the tea house. They replace all of the staff and customers. I love the part where uh, uh, boss Yang says to the owner is like, Hey, Lee, we're going to have a big brawl here. Uh, your shit is going to get wrecked and we're going to pay for it, but you guys got to get out of here. It's, we're, it's we're Lee. doing a climactic. Oh, it's Lee. Yeah. It's, it's Lee. He's like, look, We'll pay for all the damages. Just get out of here. <laughs> We're having a climax fight here. Uh, I, I I really like when they're all getting in place and Zhang hides his axe under some peanuts. <laughs> He's got, got that basket of peanuts with his axe in it. He's got like the silly hat. That's really funny. <laughs> it's like your uniform. You already hide your axe. Yeah. And uh, Ma <laughs> goes and sits down with Yang. And he's really ready to butter him up at the start. He says, well, you're the equal of Tan C. And Ma's like, not the equal. And it can be read a couple different ways. Do you yeah. think he's saying he's better or do you think he's saying he is not as good as him? That's tough, actually. Because Yang That's... definitely reads it yeah. as him saying he's better than him. He's like, oh, confidence. Hmm. Yeah, whereas... Uh... Him being like not the equal could be like I I couldn't do the cigarette thing. Yeah, I feel it's or, just or not like not something that shallow. No, no, I I feel it's just I mean you know th- this is the guy I idolized and I could never quite get next to him and now he's gone so I just kind of have to get revenge. I, it does feel well, he's speaking like speaking of mm, getting revenge. Yeah, yeah, he's like I I'm not interested in that territory anymore. Or no, Yang says he isn't interested in the territory anymore. And he's like, you can keep it. And Ma's like, I'm not interested in it either. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, you know, that could be read both ways. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know. Because he could now think it's like, holy shit, I've surpassed 10C. Technically. It could be because he survived. Yeah. And it sort of fits with his grasping for status and how confident he is in his Kung Fu. But it also seems like, yeah, man, I, you know, I lost this dude and I've lost everyone who's around me. I obviously couldn't hold it together as a boss. So maybe I'm not his equal. I just couldn't do it. Could be that too. Um, shit. I, I don't know. Uh, and it, it could also be a thing where he's sort of realized his more moral obligation where it's like, he's recognized this, loop that he's in and all of this bosses coming and going stuff because he says to yang like the thing is i want you dead you are a public enemy which suggests he's kind of realized that 
this cycle of bosses is just punishing the poor and not uplifting anyone except the boss at the time. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, yeah. I'm just tearing all of this down now. Yeah, the only reason he got uplifted is because of his kung fu. Nothing else would have got him here. Yeah. And he's about to start fighting with Yang, and Zhang fucking steps up and pulls his axe out of the peanuts and gets him <laughs> in the gut with it. Oh, yeah. So so that happens right at the beginning. It opens and, the fight. Yeah. And, and he has this axe in his gut for half an hour as he is like solid like half of this fight yeah well yeah yeah as he is just like tansy slowly getting covered in more and more and more blood he is so covered in blood by the end it's crazy yeah Uh, this, this whole fight is insanity well like especially the this first shot of it it really feels like the house of blue leaves thing they do that pov shot where he turns shakily and sees all of these dudes surrounding him on both floors all of them armed just waiting for him it's like oh shit (laughs) Mm -hmm. everybody here's a bad guy or well everybody's here everybody here's a bad guy let's start just cutting through them i don't have to i don't have to worry about who i hit because they're all evil yeah no collateral damage civilians yeah uh so he grabs Lu Pu and fucking body slams him. <laughs> and in doing so, his shirt explodes off of him like he's the fucking Incredible Hulk. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, what an oh shit moment to begin a fight. Someone gets him in the stomach with an axe. It's still buried in him. And he grabs the guy we've supposedly been waiting for this whole movie to see his incredible kung fu prowess. The guy we and, were sure would be the end boss. <laughs> yeah. And our guy just grabs him, picks him up, and in one motion slams him on the floor and his shirt explodes off of him in tiny <laughs> rags. It's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> That's just the start. Yeah, he grabs another dude, karate chops him in the chest, like so hard that blood just fountains out of his mouth. <laughs> yeah. And he he essentially, like, he's going after each of the mini-bosses one at a time and taking them all out. But in between, there will be other uh, henchmen just coming in between him. And he just, like, takes them out nonchalantly on his way to uh, each of the champions, quote-unquote. There there must be, like, a hundred henchmen in this scene. Oh, probably. Because he just keeps pressing his attack on Lu Pu while he's upstairs, and other guys keep coming at him, and he's just, like, shrugging them off, shaking them off. No problem at all. Finally, Lu Pu gets body slammed down off into the second floor, like, off the second floor into a table downstairs. So I didn't realize that that was Lu Pu. I thought that was just a thug. Yeah, no, it took me till the second viewing. Just like, oh, that's what happened to Lupu. He got taken out in the first thing. Like he was the dude who just went after. I figured I was because I was looking like at the end of it when there is only Yang and two other guys left. I was like, well, one of these has got to be Lupu. You got to have like <laughs> nope. another. Fu- oh no, he no, he was gone. Yeah, he was the first one. Shit. So then Lee comes after him with his knife, and he gives him a good slash. Yeah, but you know Lee. Lee's 
entire purpose is just to get the shit kicked out of him. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) He gets it pretty bad because Ma gets a hold of him and and slams him through the stair railing. And then the, the top beam comes down on his neck and he just hits the top beam into the back of his neck until he dies. Oh, that's, uh, this fight's so violent too. It's so bloody and gory. Uh, so that we we're, we're down to just two champions, just like that. Yep. <laughs> just yep. Zhang and Fan. And we're still at the beginning. And like he's still at the top of the stairs, so Fan kicks him down the stairs, so he has to deal with the guys downstairs now, which is where there's yeah. just a hundred baddies. Mm-hmm. Like, like no joke, it really is probably around a hundred, at least dozens. Uh, it's the crazy eighty-eight, you know. It, it's that's yeah, it's it's exactly that. Yeah, you know, it's like were there really eighty-eight of them? Like, I don't know. It's just a cool name, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> And like they, they all confidently surround him, and he just goes for Zhang. He knows you gotta go for the big guys. Of course, of course, it's a video game logic. You don't really worry about you don't worry about the nameless ones. They can't do damage. Not much. Uh, and it's very wrestling too, because there's a lot of hitting with chairs, breakaway chairs. Oh yeah, and smashing like through the railings of the stairs or the balcony. And, <laughs> the railings are just gone by the end of the fight. Yeah, they're like progressively being torn apart. Uh, I, I like how Zhang is hitting him with chairs until someone throws an axe down from the fir- from the top floor because his is obviously still in Ma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so finally he pulls the axe out of his own gut and gets Zhang with it. Uh, it oh, it he fucking hacks him up. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is this the one where it's like just carving a gouge into the pillar with the axe at his head? Or is that a different one? Yeah, like, well, th- that's how uh, Zhang has him. Like, he's got him against a pillar and he hits the axe at his shoulder. And it seems like he's maybe cut him and he's like going down the right. this support beam. But then Ma takes the axe out of his own stomach and hacks him right in the face with it and chops him to death. Jeez. <laughs> Rip Zhang. Uh, he went down real hard. Oh, yeah. I would say he was the most successful of the champions. So I would say so. <laughs> it's really not looking good for Fan as the last one left. No, no, it isn't. Uh, so Ma chops through like four and four or five guys on the way to deal with Fan on his way down the stairs. And this is when finally his guys show up. (laughs) (laughs) They find out that something's going down and they show up outside. Yeah, but they, they don't go in, do they? Or most of them, they never get inside. They they never get inside. Right. Because because thugs come out. There's so many underlings here. So Zhang or not Zhang Yang says like, you guys got to go outside and deal with them. And they send out most of the underlings, but keep, you know, 20 or so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because you can't realistically have 100 guys attacking Ma all at once. They're just yeah. going to get in each other's way. So Exactly. They, so you got the guys to spare for the for the uh, underlings. Right. So by this point, Ma is just completely soaked in blood. And Fan just grabs him, gets him in a headlock. And it does seem like he's supposed to be the strongest of the champions. Like, that's why we've heard him describe himself as the head of the four champions earlier. 
Yeah, I feel like that's what's supposed to be, but we never see it. No, but they do have the longest fight of all of these guys. Like they they're going around for a while, like just physical pounding at each other. Mm-hmm. And outside the battle just keeps on raging and Yang's guys are starting to lose. They like it's attrition out there, so they send out a bunch more guys. So it's really <laughs> getting down to just a few dudes. Uh each fan yeah. is downstairs with Ma and Yang is upstairs. Each of them have five bodyguards. And everybody else is outside. But of course, by this point, Ma is completely soaked in blood. He's so horribly wounded. We can see his wound getting worse from the exertion. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, He's like Tansy before him. He's not going to make it through this. No, no. So Yang, he's starting to feel cocky. He starts coming down the stairs. (laughs) And he's like gloating. Yang! I don't think you could fight. No, I don't think so either. And Ma has just this burst of rage at him saying it, it's the thing again where he's been challenged and he's like, oh, that that is exactly what I needed. That's my spinach. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. It totally is. Yes. Because like he just has this one raging burst and he just takes out all of fans, guys, the five in the bottom area. And then. He just starts punching Fan in the stomach until he fucking dies. Like, yep. he, he hits him four or five times in the stomach and then on the sides of the head. Oh, yeah, he's just pounding <laughs> and pounding and pounding him. Well, it's just animal rage. There's no yeah. humanity left in him by this point. Yeah, it's like he's not even kung fuing anymore. Yeah, it's it's just primal. So Yang sends three of his remaining dudes. He's going to hold on to a couple guys up there, but it's like, this is getting down to the wire. (laughs) Keep him away from me. Yeah. They knock him back down the stairs, and Ma obviously just kills them with their own axes. Yep. Uh, I, I, I love how he grabs one guy and he beats another guy with his body (laughs) and then he continues to beat the guy until he pushes him halfway through a support beam oh my god this is so violent (laughs) (laughs) and outside the battle has almost totally winded down there's like five or six dudes left and mostly it's ma's guys yeah And, and we see that one of those two hanger on guys has died but the other one survives i think I think the other one does survive. The one guy does definitely die. Because I, I think there's a sequence where he, you know, they, they're all having the battle and the guy rushes over to check on him. And it's like, oh, no, my friend. But we've really never established these guys as characters. So I didn't care. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, they're, they're the hangers on. They, they're not yeah. characters. They're just some dudes. So Ma continues crawling up the stairs and one of the henchmen kicks him back down. And again, they do this thing like, well, he's dying. He hasn't got the strength. <laughs> that sounds like a challenge. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> what did you say about me? So this is where he kicks and destroys the support beam to bring the second floor down to him since he can't get up there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. He just brings the floor down. Axe is the last two underlings. Yang is just trapped under a bunch of debris uh, and Ma chops him in the throat. Yeah. And one of the guys who came down in the rubble revives for a second and gets Ma in the back with an axe once more. 
And it's kind of like the Tan C thing where he's laughing as he's attacked. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because he, yeah, he's laughing. Yeah, he's laughing maniacally, and the guy chops him twice while he's doing so. But how did he know that Tan C did that? I <laughs> guess he didn't. Obviously, that he, yeah. This no, is obviously, this is do. just what he does. Yeah. And so, you know, he falls... But he's just completely drenched in blood. He is obviously at the end of it. Uh, but all of his the the remaining bunch of his guys come in with weapons and they chop the dude up. Yeah. And it's specifically eight of them, his eight apostles, right? Oh shit! I didn't all realize. That. <laughs> all surrounding his bloody corpse. I I didn't yeah I didn't think to count them or anything. Yeah, it just uh, struck me like, huh? There's eight guys. That's interesting. Hmm. And that's it. Uh, Zhang and Jin and her uncle all happen to be on the train out of town, but that's during the end credits. <laughs> yeah. It well, says the end, and those guys are getting on the train. Yeah, the end. They're on a train. Movie's over. Go home. Yeah. I mean, the action's over. We we don't really need to follow up. These guys are leaving, by the way. <laughs> the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah that's, that's another thing I love about these movies. Uh, they don't waste time with the ending. It's just, okay, fight's over. Um, give you the tiny little bits of important information you need for closer, and then that's it. It's over. Yeah, we don't need to spend 15 minutes with all of the hobbits sharing a bed. We can all just move on. <laughs> We've seen the final battle, and we understand uh, that... Oh, my God. I forgot about Return of the King. I had to go to the bathroom so bad at the end of that movie. Me too. And I was like, oh, man, okay, well... After Aragorn gets crowned, that's it, man. I can go to the bathroom. It'll be awesome. There just kept being more endings. It felt like I was being punked. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Shaw Brothers uh, don't do that. Yeah, Shaw Brothers are great about that. They're like, well, this plot is over. I mean, you don't really need any of these loose ends tied up, really. Like, look, these guys are getting out of town like we said they would. Honestly, (laughs) them getting on the train is more tying up of loose ends than we usually get from the Shaw Brothers. Absolutely. Usually we see the last bloodied body and the end comes up as we see people moving out of frame. (laughs) Yeah. That's how we do it. The end will come up as he falls down. Yeah. Which is great, and I'm totally pleased with this. It's it's great to have them getting away. It's like okay, we're we're fulfilling it, but that happens while the credits are rolling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Good one, really, really oh, good man. movie, right? I love this one. Holy shit, this <laughs> this might be my new favorite. Really interesting. I don't know if I'd say I I think I would still lean towards Human Lanterns as my number one of the ones I've seen recently because that one really revs. You're right. Human Lanterns. uh, Human Lanterns is a very different animal. Yeah, that one's up there. There's a few that I would put pretty high, but that one's maybe the top one. Um, The Crippled Avengers. Crippled Avengers rules. (laughs) That one's nuts. Uh, Same director. Oh, yeah, that's right. So uh, this being a non-consecutive box set, do you want to do the next one to replace it in the stacks with, or do you want to choose a different one? I remember seeing one in here uh, that I just love the name of that's called Dirty Ho. (laughs) Dirty Ho. No idea what it's about. I think it's kind of a drunken master one and sort of a more comedic one where like our like Dirty Ho, Ho is the guy who is the master, but he's like a dirty master, like a drunken master type. Oh, okay. Yeah. I believe. 
Okay. I'm not sure I have possibly seen it before, but I don't think so. A lot of I've seen a few Drunken to, Master ones, yeah. A lot of them are starting to blur together. Well, they, they have very similar plots. They're, the, the plot is more of a template for the action sequences. Uh, they, they do the Chinese boxer plot like a dozen times. This one is kind of similar to the Fist of Fury plot. Oh, yeah. Uh, which I don't think you've seen. Fist of Fury, Bruce Lee. That's oh, a good movie. You know what? No, I haven't. That's his but like this breakthrough is, one. This is similar to other plots. This is this is kind of like Mean Girls. Oh yeah. In, in that uh, that she's all pure, but then she gets in with the Mean Girls and then just straight up becomes one. Immediately sells out. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what this one's about. Uh, of, interesting. She learns a lesson. Yeah, our guy. I mean, arguably he does learn a lesson. It's just either way, he's going out in a bloody vengeance spree of some sort that's kind of what he was always destined for it really is so any last thoughts before we move on to part two yeah bosses rise bosses fall there will be another person in charge of the tea house tomorrow that's true all right on to part two and we're back for part two where we're talking about star trek the motion picture uh, from 1979, directed, as I mentioned in part one, by Robert Wise, real Hollywood legend. Oh, what what else has he done? So he had two Best Pictures and Best Director uh, Oscars by this point in his career, which I think is probably why he had the hubris to be like, I can do 2001. That Stanley Kubrick ain't so big. <laughs> hmm. That explains a bit. That does. So he had directed West Side Story and The Sound of Music, which both right. he won Best Director and Best Picture on. Right, right, yes. Uh, and, you know, he, he'd done lots of big stuff. Like, he uh, started in horror, which I think is notable for sort of the uh, vibes of this movie. Real vibes movie, as you mentioned. It is a real vibes movie. You gotta be in the mindset to accept vibes. Uh, I'm gonna yeah. say this right now. First time I watch it, real high, just totally just into it. Like, hey, I don't care about, I'm not into a movie. I just want to have an experience. And gave me that. Right, it's and, the 2001 thing. Yeah, but the second time I watched the movie to take my notes down, I wasn't high and I was so incredibly bored. See, I still like it either way. When I watched it a year or so ago, the first time it appeared uh, as an option, I watched half of it up to the point where they arrive at the cloud and are about to do the traveling to the middle of the cloud half of the movie. And I, I watched an, a few minutes of it. I was like, man, I want to get stoned to watch this part because it's so psychedelic. But I was really enjoying it thoroughly up to that point anyways, because it's such a blast. It's it's such a weird vibes movie, but I like slow cinema. I mean, I'm into it just as a piece of slow cinema that is intentionally just luxuriating in... Uh, the energy of the spaces more than it is anything about a plot because mm -hmm. this is this has no action this is not a movie that is meant to be action-packed our characters do nothing they don't fight uh they barely move <laughs> it's it's a lot of them looking at view screens a lot of view screen acting that's sort of the big complaint about this movie and also uh they're they're sort of 
I, I mean, it's kind of the Star Trek thing, and it's what sets Star Trek as distinctly apart from Star Wars, right at the point where Star Wars has come out. And they're like, we're not doing that Star Wars shit. We don't need to have a bunch of spaceships having battles. We're going to show the majesty of space. We're doing the 2001 thing and just having, like, the majesty of space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like this captures the majesty of the Star Trek world pretty well yeah and it's a weird expression of gene roddenberry too because it's very roddenberry in how deeply horny it is at its core mm-hmm. um I, so the first time i watched it i didn't see it but the second time i watched it i literally it's have blatant. something in my notes uh they enter Beecher's butthole yeah they they totally go up the butthole it, it's it is a sphincter that i think spock specifically has to pass through first uh, he's the, yeah he's yeah he's the one that penetrates Vidra's butt uh but I, I i mean just the whole thing with the dolphin and how the dolphin's physiology obviously affects the way the Vidra entity interacts with the crew for the rest of the movie once it becomes partially human or partially sentient that that it mm-hmm. gains that humanity the humanity it gains is deeply horny and that colors all of its interactions even though her oath of celibacy is on record captain well indeed and like also <laughs> Which, my ex uh. <laughs> oh my god oh yeah we have x drama it's all x drama it's like oh my god the it's enterprise all drama. the enterprise is kirk's ex and it's now with this other dude whose ex is you know assigned to the ship ultimately well that that kind of happens by accident after kirk gets the other guy killed sort of <laughs> yeah well i i don't know if that was his it's not fault. really his fault no well a lot of this stuff is his fault but i don't think the transporter thing is it's not his fault but it's also like i need you to hurry up and get up there right away and then they just kind of spend an hour pissing around and doing nothing it's a long time before they actually leave and like maybe i didn't need him to hurry up here and get destroyed by the the transporter when it wasn't working yet but oh well yeah yeah kirk moves on (laughs) kirk moves on (laughs) well you you don't hear him give a eulogy over that guy about how he was the most truly human (laughs) no i mean he's he hasn't uh gained his humanity from spock in the same way yet yeah Spock uh, has to have his own like this, I would say, is a Spock movie in a weird sort of way. Spock has this really deep emotional arc that's totally background because he oh, how to put it. He's parallel to V'ger. He Yeah, I definitely saw it like the second time around. It's like, oh, man, he's he's like the Vulcan version. Of, he even well, makes a comparison to himself. It's it's he is he sees V'ger as the version of himself that never truly understood humanity that did not work with the Enterprise crew and came to understand the beauty of emotion the the purpose of emotions the uh, give and take that that humanity involves. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because he starts the movie doing the I'm done with emotions ceremony. Yeah, but he fails it. <laughs> <laughs> but he fails it for a really weird reason that I ne- I don't feel like it makes... We're going to have to talk about it. Yeah, it's kind of more he rejects it. It seems like he decides that he does not want to. Uh, that's true. He notably puts 
Like, he's the one who blocks her from putting the keychain necklace on him. Yeah, he is literally in the final ceremony, and they're like, you got it, brother. And he's like, wait, I don't got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, We can just get right into that part. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, it's pretty much near the beginning. We don't need to do right this in strict order. Yeah, you're right. So one of the early scenes is on Vulcan, which looks really cool, by the way. Oh, yeah, I, li- I liked the Vulcan stuff. Well, the Vulcan thing, rather. Yeah, you, you see very little, but it's it's enough to show that it's kind of this epic space. We see more of it in Wrath of Khan, of course. Oh, yeah, which we covered way, way back. Way back, day. way back. The one that obviously most people like more except me. <laughs> I, I'm you with definitely the majority on this people. one. Uh, yeah, I think Wrath fair. of Khan ruled. I think this one is good under the right circumstances, but I think this one's totally amazing. Rules. This one is amazing, but uh, you know, Wrath of Khan's amazing too. This one's just special, uh, and also a formative movie for me. I guess notably, this is one I saw when I was very young, and it was really a big impression on me. So it's been percolating in my mind for you know twenty five years. Oh yeah, see, I this is actually or more the than first, that shit. Oh, this is actually the first. Oh, damn, <laughs> this is actually the first Star Trek movie that I had seen parts of because i saw like Mm. the last 20 minutes so i saw like the whole resolution the reveal of what v'ger was but i had no idea how we got there yeah uh and Uh, we don't you don't get there it's it's all of it's (laughs) at the end there there's not really any real revelation it's such a slow moving movie and it's it really captures the original trek feel in that it's this movie about them encountering this weird unknowable thing in space they're like huh what the fuck's this thing? And it's way more powerful them than them. And then they're like, well, I guess we need to figure out a way to fuck it. And then they figure out a way to fuck it. And then they're like, okay, we're good. That is literally what happens. <laughs> they found someone. They got Decker to give a, to give it a Decker dickin'. Yeah. And Decker or sucks, by the way. Decker with his pecker. Uh, uh, I don't want to think about it. Whichever one of those is better. None of them are good. Don't. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'll keep all of them and double them. Oh, no. yeah, of course. Uh, it's yeah, too, no, can't edit it out now. It's too hard. Uh, Decker Decker sucks. But anyway, we, we were talking about Spock on Vulcan and how I, yeah. I love I love the look of Vulcan. It's just this horrible wind-blown ruin, but with giant statues that you just see a little bit of. Yeah, it, it, it kind of reminds me of Mars. It's Mars-esque, uh, which is interesting given the history of the vulcans being supposed to be kind of like they're they're the other branch from which um that other race comes the the bad guys romulans romulans they're they're the romulans who learned how to chill out Uh, (laughs) so it's interesting that they're on mars the war planet or they they have a very mars-like planet that's like the war planet you know mars war oh yeah Uh, yeah but uh, they're the ones who, after centuries, have learned to quell that urge in them. Oh, and that's why they value yeah. logic over emotion so high. So yeah. I, I'm not well-versed in Star Trek lore at all. I I sort of am and sort of not. Like, I've seen the entire original series a few times, and I've seen half of TNG 
Okay. And I've seen all of these movies a few times, but I do yeah. not like. <laughs> I'm certainly not reading any of the external novels or anything. <laughs> uh, okay, so so you might you'll probably know this. Is this mm. the first time Klingons had head ridges? Yes, absolutely. Okay. This is the first appearance of the modern Klingons in this opening sequence, right? Yeah, it's the opening sequence. They are the ones who have to get zapped by the cloud so that everyone else knows how dangerous it is. Great kind of creepy sequence like really delves on or delves into wise's past as a horror director it really works uh the cloud even though it's just designs is like weirdly like like how uniform it is it's just kind of scary to look at it's it's them really doing the 2001 thing well i feel where they're like this is just this huge space cloud and we've seen images of space clouds by this point in history with uh uh i think the hubble telescope maybe by this point maybe not quite yet because it's 79 maybe not yet but we've seen deep space photography and we've seen some of this stuff and it's true like it really looks like a real classic weird space cloud that is so unknowable to us Mm -hmm. and like the more we learn about it the more we realize that it doesn't make sense that we don't know anything. They they describe the cloud later on as being two astronomical units in diameter. That's two whole light years uh, for yeah. those who don't know. That's yeah, it's impossible. Gigantic. Well, that that's because it's built to contain all knowledge. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, as we will find out. And yeah, it's it's this impossibly huge thing. It's been uh, rebuilt by a machine planet, and it's potentially built by the Borg. Question mark. I, Obviously, the Borg were not created by this point in time, but I wonder if that's sort of what we're supposed to take from it, because it's out in deep space and it's been sent back. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not a native of the machine planet. So, like, there's other different machine life forms besides Viger out there who are like a different species of machine life. And we don't know anything about them. Right. At and this they, point. they could be Borg. Like, it, it could, could totally be, be that they rebuilt this for this kindred life form is like okay you you go back to where you came from so you can fulfill your mission but obviously we're getting ahead of ourselves there we're getting way ahead of ourselves (laughs) but i want to make this point before i forget yes yes because when it becomes relevant it'll be so long from now what if the resolution of this story how they uh quote unquote deal with viger becomes inspiration for like the borg's whole thing to assimilate everyone I, I don't know if they're even tracking it by this point. If it's this close to Earth, then it doesn't really make sense that uh, the Borg are aware of it because they become aware of humans in a specific episode of TNG. Oh, okay. I, again, <laughs> I don't Star Trek. Lore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the Borg hadn't even been like made up yet at this point, had they? No. No. But they are the notable machine life of uh, machine esque life, cyborg hive mind plan i don't know card is one of them ultimately well it's it's because that i mean that eventually happens as he gets taken by them and they're able to rescue him okay but then in the movies it gets weird and they do some stupid things with it the tng movies are not great i don't really like any of them i don't think i've enjoyed any of them myself uh like i've enjoyed a few of them but the the only one i I think the first two are decent. Generations and First Contact are both pretty good, but 
none of them are as good as these first two mm. or four <laughs> or <laughs> or six, six. <laughs> yeah yeah God, yeah. I gotta see more of the good ones. I mean, yeah. sorry, not that I think this is a bad movie. This uh, one rolls. Yeah. It's a perfect movie. It's the best in the series. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we see the Klingons get zapped, and it's this like whole thing they where they're like trying to shoot the plasma things and it just doesn't work and they they get zapped and it looks like they just disappear out of existence. Yeah, it, it 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 disintegrates them. It's just this disintegration beam. It turns them into information. It it yeah. assimilates them essentially. It is, yeah, that that's what it is. It's like that's that's why I think V'ger might be like the original Borg or could come from the Borg planet. I mean, it can't be the original Borg, but yeah, it could no, be okay, yes, sent no. from them. But uh, the uh, I I really like the way the scene is played out. It's very tense and it's got. They're like you don't really have much dialogue with the Klingons. They're just kind of seeing this disaster take place, mm-hmm. and we see just one ship blink out, and then all of them are getting a little bit more nervous on their ship, like oh, oh, oh. <laughs> we'll do this, yeah. and then just yeah, it's it's them each being blinked out of existence one by one, very patiently. Uh-huh. This is a movie that yep. does patience. Yes. Uh, and then we we get the Epsilon 9, that cool space station with all the triangles. Um, and that the, they're the ones who watched the Klingon fight. And, fight, it's not a fight. The Klingon massacre. Well, they have uh, the video of it, right? Cause, yeah, uh, they have the video. We, we need to have people able to see it later. Yeah, you have to be able to warn Earth about the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so but I, I like the design of that spaceship or that space station or whatever it is. Yeah, you see I it like a lot it. in uh, TNG. They they reuse some shots and models very frequently. Oh, I didn't know that. I don't know how I feel about that. <clears throat> a lot of TNG stuff is heavily borrowed from these movies. Like, obviously, the theme song that they create for this movie becomes the TNG theme. I thought that was oh no it's not because the original theme song is ooh or right. something like that yeah, yeah. whereas this is da, 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 da. it's it's the TNG theme fully uh, th- this was a reorchestration I, yeah yeah I, I've watched so little of the original series that I just thought it was the Star Trek song yeah no this this became the Star Trek song certainly yeah. but this was the new one uh, and like. It, it kind of fits because this also was recycled from an attempted reboot of Trek as a new TV series, Star Trek Phase Two, that just didn't work out. <laughs> this, this is probably better. Oh, I or completely what we, like, agree. Getting all these movies was probably the right call. Oh, absolutely, and it, it much better revived the franchise. I, I don't think, like, if they'd just done a kind of crummy late '70s reboot that failed after a year. We wouldn't still have Star Trek, I don't think. You're right. Uh, I agree with that. I don't think we would. So, yeah, after the Epsilon does the thing, we get the Vulcan scene. And I wanted to ask about that because they mention it's here that Spock feels the consciousness of of the entity. Um, yeah, it's it's just like the Jedi thing. You know, he feels, you know, this, the, he, he feels the energy of the being uh, from a great distance, just like how... Kenobi feels the Death Star snuffing out a planet. You know, he feels all the these voices yeah. silenced. But it doesn't make sense to me because they're like, 
the the Vulcan elder or whatever is like it's your human blood calling out to this thing, and it's like, why? Why would this thing and humans have like a, a psychic connection? Is well, it something it, Spock does? I I think it's just Spock and the way he's sort of in tune with the universe. Okay. Uh, I mean, he's been out doing mind melds and with all kinds of crazy shit over <laughs> mind the years. Mind melds, of course. Right, I, I forgot. Again, I don't Star Trek lore. Of course I forgot Vulcans do mind melds and that's like their whole thing. Yeah, that does make sense. I just thought it was weird that Spock specifically would have a connection to this thing that doesn't even recognize carbon-based beings as actual life forms well he doesn't and and i think it's more an emotional connection that he ultimately has with it because he understands it it is this thing that is going through the growing pains of learning humanity which is something he's already done and he's out here deciding to discard all that he's learned with his interactions with humanity and he realizes in that moment that he can't that you know it's it's not going to be something that helps him if he does that that uh he's damaging himself by uh removing this part of himself okay okay that makes sense i i thought he had that revelation later when he was in the sick bay yeah i mean i think he becomes much more aware of the meaning to him as as time goes on at first it's just like there's this thing that he feels a weird kinship with that he has to investigate and it it seems like a thing that if it's out there and that he has this personal compulsion to do it he's not ready to have no emotions oh okay that makes sense and then so he has to go see this thing because it's preventing him from doing his ceremony I mean, I I don't or, know if he even intends to continue the ceremony because it sounds like he's failed the ceremony a few times already. Oh, <laughs> or or it's like the key to. Hmm. I I have trouble with Spock's arc in this, maybe because I just don't know his character that well. Hmm. I I kind of get it on the surface level, but some things about it just don't quite line up for me. Uh, well, he's intentionally closed off. That's that's sort of important to the whole deal is that Spock is emotionally closed off for the whole movie. He is not interacting with these guys because he's just gone through this whole ceremony and he's been apart from them for some time. And they're really surprised when he is colder than he was when they saw him last. But, yeah, that I, I picked that up. Yeah, but, you know, ultimately... He is sort of dealing with that and back with these people and he's sort of getting back into it. And I feel like he's sort of going through all the same stuff again, where he's remembering what it's like to deal with humans. But he he has also learned the value of it by this point. You know, he's spent five years flying through space with these weirdos. Yeah. Okay. And I guess just like in the two years, because I think it's supposed to have been two years between when the Enterprise mission ends and this movie or something? Something like that. I don't know. Uh, We see that, like, Kirk has gotten uh, a promotion. He's an admiral now, but he hates it. (laughs) (laughs) That was a big thing in Wrath of Khan, too. It's like, it's a desk job. I'm not a desk desk clerk. Yeah, I want to go out and fucking fly around the universe in a ship. That's all I ever wanted to do. I want my why, ship back. <laughs> although, to be fair, if that's what you're doing, why would you ever stop? Well, I, I think it's just a, he moves up. Like, he, he's 
on track to move up the chain and he's willing to take a demotion to stay as the captain but he doesn't (laughs) do that for a couple movies he does ultimately i think take a demotion in like number three i want to say oh yeah i guess this isn't a demotion this is more of him strong arming the enterprise back in under his command yeah i'm taking my girl back collins or (laughs) uh, whatever decker you piece of shit yeah decker oh god so Star Trek's version of Earth is so... I wish we could get there. It's a sort of a dream of Silicon Valley, uh, a, a utopian vision of future Silicon Valley from the point of mid-70s when, you know, all the ecological movements were in town. That's where Greenpeace was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And everything's, like, so nice and clean, and you've got, like, the Golden Gate Bridge or the Brooklyn Bridge or one of those bridges. Golden Gate. And there's... Isn't the Golden Gate? Okay. It's the Golden Gate Bridge. Well, yeah, it's San Francisco. It's, you know, it's Silicon Valley. You got the bridge and it's Starfleet Command headquarters. Yeah, yeah. So it's the nicest place on Earth. This is the hub of the universe, basically. But like, that's one thing I've always liked about Star Trek. Star Wars might arguably be a more entertaining universe to watch, but I don't want to live there. No, I yeah, do not want to live in Star Wars land. No, and, and I, I agree. That is the beauty of Trek is it's a utopian future. It's the only really optimistic ver- vision of the future that we have in sci-fi. It's not dystopian at all. It's like, look, we figured this shit out. Yeah, we made like, friends with people, with uh, other races. We yeah. explored. We, we devoted ourselves to our better instincts. Even though it's from like a 60s point of view where Kirk is just kind of fucking his way through everything, he's still much more progressive when you watch those early episodes than, you know, like uh, most characters are in like modern stuff. First on screen interracial kiss. That's true. I mean, <laughs> you can, nothing can take that away from him. Yeah. I, the the original Trek is a great show. I love TOS. It has some fucking stinkers. There are some terrible <laughs> episodes, but there's also some absolutely brilliant ones. Like it revolutionized television in some ways. Yeah, like like I, I'm sure the Trek world does have problems, but man, I want to live on. I even want to live on the Enterprise, the place that's oh, like yeah. getting into all the shit. It's like no, this when they're just cruising around in space, this place looks comfy as fuck. Well, that's that definitely comes in with the movies. The on TOS, it does not look that comfortable. It's much more like an old Navy ship. It's oh. clearly written by people who had some experience of World War Two being on Navy ships, and it just looks like a freighter. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, you know, by the time you get to TNG, it's a cruise ship. It's all taupe and has all the cozy cushioning on the walls, and oh, it looks so comfortable. Oh man, I would. When I was young, I was that was always my dream. I just want to be one of the crew men on the ship who like just mm-hmm. does whatever, uh, hangs out in like the cool place. Sure, you have a job, but you also get to do all the hang out at like the cool bars. And, Ten forward, like, yeah. Hang out with Whoopi. Yeah. As a uh, 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 man, what is the character's name? Shit, <laughs> I should know. I, I never knew. Uh, God damn it! I can't believe it's just escaped my mind she's a great character she's like one of my favorite characters on the show even oh cool uh guinan whoopi goldberg is guinan uh the bartender at 10 forward all right anyway this one is sort of in between this ship this version of the enterprise it's like dark 
most of the time. It's really low light and mm. it's a little more military, but it's also the, looking cozy. Yeah, the corridors aren't very welcoming. No. Yeah, but yeah, like the stuff on Earth and e- even like the captain's quarters. The ship is nice. Everything's nice. I love I want to be in this world. Not, oh, not man, the one get, that we're going to end up with. No, and uh, Bones' outfit when he shows up, you get to see his, like, <laughs> styles had really gotten fucking great again. <laughs> <laughs> kind of reminds me of, like, a toned-down version of Disco Stew from The Simpsons. It's toned down? I don't think. No? He's got, like, a huge disco medallion. He's got, like, what? the big lapels. He's got the open chest. He's got the beard. Bones looks fucking crazy. <laughs> he doesn't have the goldfish platforms. True. <laughs> well, that's not utopian, right? Well, that's... <laughs> no, it isn't because the goldfish die. Yeah. I don't know how to get him out. The utopian version, he'd have, like, robot ones or something in there. But oh, yeah. Maybe that's that's more of a red dwarf gag <laughs> than a Star <laughs> Trek gag. Well, yeah, yeah, for sure. After Kirk is like, "Hey, I'm gonna go in a meeting, and then the Enterprise is gonna be mine, and it's gonna take three minutes." Yeah, he's he's saying it to this uh this guy Sa- Sonak. Oh, Sonak, right? I didn't realize the first time that he was the guy in the transporter accident. And this is him. I yeah, he was just a guy. Right, and this is where Kirk's saying. Hey, I'm going to head up there and the Enterprise is going to be mine in five minutes. So I want you to be there in two minutes so you're there to back me up. He's like, I don't know about this. And <laughs> like, it's like, Kirk, just be there. Kirk, you're not going to be at the Enterprise in five minutes. You're going to be at the Enterprise in 20 minutes. He's like, just be there ahead of me. But <laughs> whatever. He yeah. he will will soon go up there and the transporter isn't working properly and he just gets melted. Oh, yeah. It's cool. Um, We've never seen this before. Someone uh, getting lost in the transporter. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's a good scene because, like, you can see just enough to know that what's happening is horrible, but it also obscures it enough that you you end up imagining it. Yeah. And the, the, the people on the other end of it, like, what came back didn't live long. <laughs> Not that it was already dead. It was alive for a bit. Yeah, that's that that makes it extra gross. That's one that really haunted me as a kid. Like I said, I saw this really young. I rented it on VHS in elementary school. Uh, I remember watching this with hmm, however many of them were out by that point. Like, I think I did this one one weekend and then did a marathon of all the other ones the following weekend. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> cool. this one just like appealed to me so much. The, the misshapen but still slightly human flesh-colored silhouette, you want to see more of it, but you also don't. I remember there was this toy magazine that was kind of a spinoff of Wizard magazine. Do you remember Wizard? I do remember Wizard magazine, but I, I don't remember anything about it because everything Wizard now is associated with that terrible uh, video game movie. Oh, I don't know anything about that. But uh, they they had a toy-based spinoff. Because, you know, they were mostly a price guide, but also news. Oh, right. And okay, I, remember I remember them. Now, yeah. yeah I, one of their gags was they would have uh, toys made of the transporter accident guys in this. That they would, like, put in little skits <laughs> in their comic. It was great. <laughs> Oh, like, like, like the fake toys of, uh, 
Luke Skywalker's two uncles who get burned in the first movie. Yeah, exactly. And they'd, <laughs> they'd have them as like partially melted and reconfigured toys that, you know, from old Trek figures. Because, you know, there's tons and tons of Trek figures out there. Oh, they, they might actually have so real many. ones of these by now. <laughs> oh, probably. But yeah, before we get to the transporter incident, first we have to get to the Enterprise. And that takes a long time. Oh, I this scene <laughs> <laughs> like even high and even still totally vibing with this movie i just wanted this scene to end 10 cuts before it did i totally love it but it is so incredibly self-indulgent it, it's kind of a litmus test it's like this is what we're doing right they're, they're saying it right from the beginning it's like this is what we're doing this is going to be a slow movie where we just drink in the majesty as long as we want to and you're going to sit there and drink in the majesty with us uh look at I, the enterprise I, well not only are they spending all this time flying around the enterprise and then just cutting to them looking really happy it's like yep that's the enterprise it looks so good that the whole time they're playing the theme song, but they're not just playing the theme song. They're playing a slowed down version <laughs> of the theme song. Oh, Absolutely wow. kills me. It's hilarious. <laughs> what do you think about it that way? Yeah, it's funny. It's funny. But I still like every time I expect it to end, it just cuts to Kirk being like, yeah, that's the Enterprise. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, you know it'll, it'll cut again to him and Scotty looking at each other like, hmm. That ship. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like it's on this it's in this big frame because it's being worked on. So the whole time I'm like, when are they going to finish getting to the Enterprise factory? Yeah, it's in space dock because that's where you got to build it. You, you can't build these things on Earth because the, they're not built for uh, terrestrial oh, no. pressures. That's the one thing oh, that's no. weird and fucking the abrams star trek where you have the enterprise in earth's atmosphere at the beginning yeah how would you get it out of earth yeah because it's fun like, just a fun image <laughs> that's that's really all it is fun image <laughs> so they they put it there whatever <laughs> i guess uh but they do get to the enterprise and yeah pretty much right away we have this transporter incident yeah uh rip sonak he was going to be a main character on enterprise phase two but that didn't work out that show didn't get made that's like that's uh, that's the fun thing decker and that guy and i think oh, really? maybe possibly persis Kambata, uh the dolphin i think all three of them were maybe supposed to be new cast and then william shatner came around <laughs> and said no this is still my show yeah and the decker's actor is like fuck you i'm gonna be well you know what happened to what happened with that guy better than i do i just heard about it from you right so yeah decker is played by stephen collins who is a confessed child molester unfortunately uh he he was on uh seventh heaven for years as one of the priests he was one of the main guys on that show uh we've you know he's actually also on always sunny he's um that guy who marries their their mom and then dies off screen oh okay okay bruce something that's him too uh but his career ends in 2014 when uh 
he gets investigated and uh, the the revelations come out because yeah this one isn't an alleged it's a confessed and oh. convicted so his career ends at 2014 firmly right right yeah but yeah Decker Decker sucks I don't like <laughs> Decker so it's sort of perfect ultimately because like you you feel like in most situations Shatner coming and strong arming his way on this new captain it seems like it would be a dick move and you feel like somewhere you should feel bad for Decker, but you never do because he just sucks and Shatner's right or Kirk is right. Yeah. Um, like there's points, I think even in the group chat where it's like, man, I this poor guy can't get a break because like all this shit happens to him. But also I don't really feel bad because he's not charismatic. Yeah. And th this is before you knew about the actor too. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, what I love is that every single person on the crew <laughs> knows about uh, Kirk being the captain, except for Decker. I love that so much when he comes on and everyone's like, oh, Kirk, it's so good to see you. And like, he doesn't know yet. Uh, <laughs> you're going to have to tell him. Oh, good. That's what I've been waiting for. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like, he, he, you know, puts an arm around him and like, hey, buddy, <laughs> you know. So I know you really were looking forward to this uh, position and I actually recommended it, recommended you for it personally. And this is your first mission, but uh, actually, no. Yeah, I, I need this myself. And Decker has this thing that he'll return to over and over again. Like you wanted this ship all along. You've just been waiting for this moment and one probably. <laughs> but two yeah. I, he needed to the, this was the thing right now you know there, there's yeah, an emergency like, situation and he's the most experienced individual yeah uh it, yeah. it has to be kirk i mean kirk yeah. wins the kirk wins this guy who knows yeah i mean th this guy didn't reprogram the system this guy didn't uh <laughs> beat the 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 kobayashi, kobayashi maru, maru. Yeah, no, he did not. This guy, like they even say, it's like, okay, yeah, Decker, but our chances for survival just doubled. Yeah, it's like, screw you. We we want Kirk too. I, I, like, no one is on Decker's side. <laughs> no, not even really uh, his love interest. Well, not she's an ex, so that that's key. The, oh the, yeah, the right. parallel ex, that's different. Yeah, she's the ex, and he still has feelings for her, and. She has taken an oath of celibacy, so maybe, maybe not. She has feelings for him. It kind of doesn't matter. I feel like she had feelings for him, but he left the planet without saying anything, and she's been forced to move on. Yeah, it kind of seems like maybe he uh, spurned her in some way, and now, like, she is uh, really not ready for his shit. Because she's never interested in his stuff the whole movie. Although, when she's V'ger spoilers sort of she becomes interested in him again but maybe that's more just the machine being guided by biology in a way that it never has before yeah yeah like, so should we get into her yeah let's get into her because she of the new characters she's the only one i give a shit about certainly the most important character introduced yeah. in the movie uh so Ilya, she is a delphin which is a big deal. Yeah, uh, I, I love uh, you pointed that out because I didn't quite I didn't quite catch it at first. Like Chekhov's uh, 
Delted. Oh yeah. Like her his little smile. Not a little smile. It's like or there no, there is a close up on him. Grin. Yeah, his his fucking stupid face uh, occupying the whole screen. Like, oh, Delphin. <laughs> Whoa! It's like his fucking eyeballs are gonna bounce out of his head, and he's gonna do a wolf whistle. I it's it's very very subtle the way she's introduced, and they're like, oh, Delphins. <laughs> Even though they never directly mention that they're extremely horny, it's pretty clear from the way they give it in the subtext i guess they maybe just couldn't talk about it directly could be I, i'm gonna be honest i never really picked that up uh, from this character because it's yeah she's not that's why she has the oath of celibacy it's not her that is horny her race is her race is supposed to be uh famously sexually active and that's why when kirk is on like Oh, so you're a delphin, I hear. And like, yeah, my, I, I've taken an oath of celibacy. You don't need to worry about it. See, I thought that was just her prematurely shutting down Kirk. And it really like that, I, thought, I mean, it is, but I thought that's all it was. Yeah, no, it, it's it's more than that. Or is it Delton? I don't know. I think I it's Delphin. I think yeah. it is Delphin, but they're from like the Delta sector no it is it is delton I, i'm oh, looking it up delton. it's it is delton which is weird because it does sound like delphin in the movie every time it comes up hmm. okay honestly i think her acting is great because she has to do basically two roles at the same exact time and like switch switch her facial expression on like a moment's notice Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the Persis Kambata, uh, she's really cool. She's very good in this. Uh, not someone who's in a ton of stuff, but very striking. Like uh, uh, like she was a model first. She's an Indian model. Oh, okay. And she was a Miss Universe winner. Oh shit. And then like I don't know, she was she started in Bollywood and she didn't do a whole lot of mainstream Hollywood movies. Like the the only one I can think of that she's in his megaforce megaforce oh, wow yeah that, i saw megaforce <laughs> a fucking weird gi joe knockoff movie with barry bostwick oh yeah no and she's also in warrior of the lost world which is very similar and was a mystery science theater movie not not very good so this would be probably the best thing she's been in oh easily that one interestingly she plays uh the daughter of uh, Donald Pleasance, also famously bald. Oh. <laughs> I can't remember if she's bald in that one. Okay. Hmm. Weird movie. It's you know it's a p- dumb Mad Max ripoff where there's oh sure yeah uh, uh, a talking motorcycle. Oh here I've got it written down. Yes, it's Delton. Yeah, it, it is Delton. I like I'm looking at the memory alpha right now. <laughs> but yeah, they, um, the thing is they have a strong sexual attraction. Uh, and it, it seems to go both ways. Like they attract people sexually. They they have like very high, what you call it, pheromones or something. Well, it worked on me. I'll tell you what. Har, 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 har. Uh, she but is, no, seriously, she is gorgeous. She's so striking. The 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 bald head. It's it's a a, a surprisingly good look. It works. I mean, mm-hmm. I now cannot imagine her with hair. I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, she's great, and oh, you know what? I do, I do see the like the sexual urges and stuff when she's possessed because very uh, important later, yeah, yeah, 
Um, well, that, that's the thing. It's it's also the the Spock thing where it's all just sort of being held under wraps until the robot shows up later, and then the robot, with its lack of emotion, uh, has to deal with human emotion. Yeah, yeah, because she already knows how to she knows how to rep- repress the sexual urges, but the robot won't necessarily know to go to those memories that she has. Right. It's a whole thing. Yeah, no, I, I think that's totally key to the end. Yeah. Yeah, so she's the navigator. Decker has to be the second in command and the science officer because, you know, the other guy was... Uh, yeah, he, he got destroyed. Uh, I, I, I found that scene really funny when it's like, well... Uh, you're just going to have to do two jobs then, Decker. Like, oh, I hate you so much you can't even imagine. <laughs> like, I, get so demoted. I get demoted and I have to do twice the work and I have to sit across the way from my ex who doesn't care and deal with this smug asshole. Yeah, and it doesn't really matter how much shit you pile on Decker's plate. It's still funny to me. <laughs> yeah. So next, Spock shows up, correct? Uh, oh no, not for a while yet. First they have to do, first they launch the ship and the wormhole happens. Oh yeah, that seems really cool the way it's shot, the sort of time dilation effect. Oh yeah, uh, when they're in inside the bridge and everybody's kind of stretched out sort of, or after images. It's really hard to describe, but it looks really cool. So they go through a wormhole and basically all of the light distorts around them and everyone has like these slow-mo motion blur that kind of uh, trails behind them in these sort of weird curls with the light. Yeah, it's, it's fucking neat. It's something that you've never really seen before. Yeah. Because usually when uh, in, in original Trek, when they go through something or the ship is buffered or whatever, you know, they move the camera and everyone jumps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they still do that. Oh, they do a do bit they of still that. that? Yeah. Oh, they do it in all of them. It, it's it's iconic. Yeah, you got to do it. It's just they had more it. money here. The, yeah. This was supposed to be kind of low budget and it went way, way, way over budget, but it still made bank. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I, I can't imagine this movie on a low budget. Wouldn't work. It I was, su- yeah, it was initially supposed to be 15 million. It ended up costing 44 million. Yeah, I don't think this movie would have worked on 15 million. Yeah, no, it sprawled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my favorite part of like the whole uh, wormhole scene is there's this asteroid coming at him and Kirk's like, oh, fire the phaser. And Decker's like, no, <laughs> photon torpedo. Yeah, so, go ahead. Uh, just how long it takes him to get the words out is, like, hilarious to me. It just, I don't know why, just the way he says it just sticks with me and just makes me both laugh and smile. I'm not making, like, I'm not making fun of it, I just love it. Yeah, I mean, it's slow motion, so it's slow. It's the one thing that he's right about, though. It is. Uh, he is, it, is right about it. The the one moment that he's like, hey, Kirk, you, you don't know how things have changed on this ship. It's been totally refitted. Yeah, I had I expected him to be right more often, but he isn't right again. No, this was the only time. This is the one thing that he had special knowledge about and it's a thing that he maybe could have handled better too oh, yeah, he was totally an <laughs> asshole about it he's like i'm sorry if i embarrassed you captain 
Well, it's also that made you an embarrassment. Yeah, and he he could have just like more immediately just dealt with it instead of uh, making a big silly production of it because that's sort of how he does the things. But yeah, he could have said no, Captain, not the phasers because. Yeah, and like no, uh, you you have to do the other one because of this. But I don't know. Yeah, and like obviously we see that Kirk would have acknowledged it because he does acknowledge it even in private. Yeah, and it, it it takes just as long ultimately because he runs over there and he like micromanages it, and it's like, man, you probably would have been a really fucking annoying boss too. I'm oh kind of glad yes. you're not the captain. <laughs> man, this guy can't carry a show on his own. Oh, he would not have had the charisma to be the captain character. Oh no. Like I don't know who you would have had as like the other characters. Like the Sonat guy just does not get time to make an impression so i don't know how he would have been yeah um yeah i don't know uh, there's there's a guy with a really big forehead who's not a klingon maybe he would have been cool i don't know i think that guy's just a background character i think they added a lot of just background dudes because it's the star trek thing where it's like yeah let's put in a bunch of aliens in the background we've never had the budget to do that before let's put a monkey where uh where chekhov was <laughs> or was it a monkey or no it's a four-armed uh, in the cartoon yeah i can't remember yeah the, but they, they they replaced Chekhov because yeah who cares <laughs> we, <laughs> we we looked it up and it was a thing where they just decided not to bother asking him he was <laughs> yeah, the they, only one that they didn't care to ask back yeah that's they weird. didn't ask him that's that's yeah that is weird I, I don't i don't get it i mean it's kind of funny yeah <laughs> Yeah. I'm not a huge Chekhov fan or anything. Chekhov's like the original Wesley in a way. You know, he was oh. introduced to cash in on the youth. He was supposed to be the young guy who is kind of hot. That's why he has a Beatles haircut. Oh, right, because that was hot. Because it was, then. yeah, it was like 1965. That it was, was like the, that was the yeah, thing. Yeah. So that that's why he is that way. And yeah, he's sort of the Wesley of his time. It's just Time has been reasonably kind to him. Uh, sort of kind to Wesley. I mean, everybody likes Will Wheaton. <laughs> uh, I haven't really heard much from him in a few years. Is he? Uh, I yeah, I don't know what he's up to these days. I don't know. Doing Will Wheaton stuff. I'm not really into gaming, and he's more of a gaming guy. And he's, yeah. He doesn't act these days. I think uh, he was in one of those Sharknados. I'm pretty sure I saw him in one of those. <laughs> those are fun they're not good but they're fun they're trash but they're oh, they're, tr they're trash that knows exactly how trash it is oh absolutely uh so after the wormhole that's when spock shows up okay and uh, i really like i wish we had more of this of like because we got the scene of him like, of them in the captain's quarters and they're just they start bantering back and forth and like old friends do and these actors the three of them together do have incredible chemistry like, yeah i mean they've been working together for a long time yeah and I, I just wish we got to see more of them talk to each other talk a little bit of shit here and there um, well that that's more of an element of the original series and you feel that they try to do that the, with bones and kirk both do that but oh, yeah they're they're trying to Clearly Spock is not into it, and that, that's sort of pointed, that he can't get into it, so they kind of can't. He's sort of the other part of the triangle, and he's just not really participating. So it's like, well, I mean, if we can't rib him, you know? Because yeah. 
Bones's whole thing is just like poking at Spock all the time. And if he's just not even reacting, it's no fun for Bones. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I, I love that. Just that whole three times he asked, will you please sit down? <laughs> yeah. It's like, fine, fine. Yeah. But like, like even this, when Spock's being just like, I don't care. I have no emotions. Even like even this scene is my favorite acting scene. Mm hmm. Well, like it, it, it's a very it, it's kind of a, a scene of being autistic. You know, he is in this situation where he's supposed to performatively respond to these people in a certain way, in a certain emotional way that he is not really ready to do uh, in this sort of public setting. And it's like, OK, yeah, I, I got it. I got it. You guys are happy to see me registered, but we've got this other stuff we got to do. And I can't perform this way for you right now. I've spent a lot of time not dealing with people. And now I have to deal with people and I don't know how to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's funny you mentioned that because I was totally thinking like this looks like an autistic person trying to trying to reconnect with like old friends from the past and also being like, well, I'm not going to pretend to do the shit. He's like, I can't really perform this right now. There, there's too much other stuff going on, and I just need to focus on this one thing, please. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and Bones brings up an interesting point that I don't think was directed necessarily at Spock. He says, well, if this thing is so important to him, how do you know he's not going to put that in front of the ship and... Kirk, of course, is like, Spock? No, absolutely. I don't believe it. No, no way in hell. And yeah. Bones is like, how do we really know about any of us? Well, that that's always Bones' thing. Bones is the distrustful one. Bones has always kind of been antagonistic to Spock. On the show, every episode, he's going to call him, oh, you green-blooded freak. You know, that, that's his whole thing. Uh, they're very antagonistic toward each other sometimes and then like at the end of episodes like oh i guess you're one of the good ones is about as good as bones ever gets oh really so um, it's sort of weird uh, well i feel like he direct he was kind of half directing that at kirk right now like oh sure how do, how do we know any of us isn't going to put our own interests above that of the ship because yeah. you could argue that that's what kirk has been doing with decker though decker sucks Ultimately, we Kirk is very much proven right in that situation. Uh, Bones just Bones is sour about everything, you know. That oh, yeah. that's just Bones's thing. That's that's kind of what I that's kind of the impression I got from the character from the little bit I've seen of him in the few movies and episodes. Which is why it's so funny the way he shows up in his fucking leisure suit. Like, <laughs> it just absolutely cracks me up when he shows up when he gets beamed aboard uh, against his will. Against he really didn't will. want to use the beam. No, and he got like basically drafted. Yeah. By Kirk. Well, he's got like the the fact that Kirk not only took over from Collins, but it's like, and I'm staffing it with all my guys too. I'm just gonna gonna get all my guys back and put them in in uh, place of your ship. Just just gonna completely take over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Although Decker is perfectly happy to give up the science seat to Spock. Yes. Well, he's recognized. Like, Spock is a legend. Kirk is, oh. like, this guy who is uh, his superior. Like, he's worked with Kirk. He's been around Kirk, and he knows that, you know, while Kirk has 
notoriety, he's also kind of an asshole and hard to deal with, probably. <laughs> Whereas Spock is this guy who did all of this legendary stuff, but he's an unknown because he like retired to go on a spiritual journey like a samurai instead of continuing Starfleet. That's yeah, that's that is what he did, isn't he? Yeah. Isn't it? It's like, holy shit, this guy came back for this thing? That's a big deal. Yeah. Although the thing is a big deal. Right. And it's also a situation where like, oh, you're going to take over one of the two jobs I've been forced into taking when I was supposed to be the captain. Yes, please take over this job. <laughs> yeah. I would Have the seat. Not, I would love to not do the work of two people at once. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. At, at this point, it doesn't take them much longer to reach the cloud. No, they, they pretty much get there uh, very quickly. And it's about halfway through the movie that they're at the cloud. And then it's just half of the movie is them slowly going into the cloud for just trying to find the center of it. And that so rules as far as I'm concerned. I absolutely love that this is a movie that's like eh, 2001. Fuck that, we'll do that. We're, we're going to get to the Stargate at the halfway point of the movie. And we're just going to spend the whole movie doing the trip. <laughs> oh yeah it's gonna be so amazing no i i think that's fucking awesome i love that oh yeah and the cloud looks so incredible the effects though, are beautiful yeah like we mostly only see it through the view screen but we usually get a few shots outside to show the enterprise in context with how huge all of it is mm-hmm. which even 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 with those shots, it's really impossible to show the true context of how huge this is because it's uh, two light years in size. Right. We we mostly get an idea of it in just it's an hour of them going through it. Like they yeah. are just constantly moving through it the whole rest of the movie. Yeah. And, and like even when they get to the ship at the center, they spend like another 20 minutes going to the center of the ship. It's just them going to the center of things. Yeah, oh, like endlessly moving towards the middle. Uh, I, I think that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, totally. I do kind of wish we had seen more of the cloud and maybe a little less of everybody's reactions to it. But There's a lot of view screen acting, yeah. It, it's a whole lot of just people looking at the stuff on the screen like, wow, that's really magical. I'm like, yeah, I know, I'm seeing it on my screen that's really magical, I agree. But I, I could just look at more of it. <laughs> yeah. But we get a lot of it. We we do get to see a whole bunch of it. Yep. And, uh, oh, man, it's it's not the same as the 2001. It's so menacing. Well, it's weird because it's similarly abstract, but it has a little bit more of a form to it that just changes with each section. But it's similarly very psychedelic. Like, mm-hmm. it, it it's acid you know it's a really strange experience uh when spock ultimately gets in a spacesuit and goes out to experience it firsthand it really amps up the psychedelic experience like there it really feels like the end of 2001 oh yeah when he when he goes into the after he goes into the butthole right yeah well even when he's going up to the butthole yeah his approach to the butthole in a spacesuit oh right yeah because Okay, I think we're referring to two different things as the butthole because I wrote down the hatch, the big iris door. I I was call I'm calling that the butthole. But then there's another thing further inside that's also a butthole. 
Okay, maybe because there, I, I know he does a thing where he gets out in uh, in in the spacesuit outside of the Enterprise, and yeah. he travels for a while before he gets to the thing he has to get inside. Does he not? He does. Yeah. Um, mostly, he's like just trying to accelerate to get through the opening and closing uh, sphincter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he sees all the planets and everything. Well, of course, yeah. You you yeah. gotta see the the interior, which I guess is. It's weird that that just that section seems to be the information center, and then everything else is the traveling apparatus. That part seems maybe it's not the traveling apparatus. Some amount of it would probably be information storage, but I, I feel like a lot of it's doing double duty. For me, a lot of it reminds me of Matrix Resurrections, or not Resurrections, Matrix Revolutions, the third one. The third one? It reminds me of their trip through the machine world to the center of the machine, uh, which you know probably this was a big influence on. Just the the strange patterns of them moving in this ship over this long, weird, strange space that all seems to be leading somewhere specific. Like there's only one highway to the middle. Mm-hmm. And oh, when they get through the cloud and get to the machine itself, oh my god, this thing is so. I'm glad they didn't show us like the zoomed out version first, because like at the end of the movie, when it gets to Earth, we should see the zoomed out machine. I'm glad we only saw bits and pieces at a time. Mm-hmm. No, like, I, I think did... they, I think they beautifully handle uh, slow reveals. Like th- this is a movie that knows patience more than anything else. Oh, I wanted to talk about that because like the whole thing about Beecher is just unwrapped so slowly for, through the movie. First, it's just a cloud, and then like an hour through, we realize that there's a spaceship at the center of the cloud, and then we realize like much later on that the spaceship is alive, like a living well, cause, machine. Because it, it, it sends a probe, so that, yeah. that's when they realize that it's a thing, or that, that it has consciousness. Like uh, Initially, Spock realizes that there's something there, and then the, the probe is just like... Uh, ball lightning on on the bridge of the ship. Yeah, yeah, it it doesn't. You wouldn't look at that and think, oh yes, this is a probe. You would think, oh yeah, we're being attacked right now. Mm-hmm. But, but it's it's like going around and sucking up information electrically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Spock has to smash the computer because it's taking all this information about Earth's defenses and Starfleet and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So he just and... wrecks up the computer and it like nonchalantly sends him flying oh yeah nonchalantly sends him flying and then it's just like okay well if i can't take your information from the computer i'll just take a person or a carbon unit rather yeah so uh ilia our delphin uh the love interest of uh uh uh, decker sort of love interest like who he wants to still be his love interest but no longer is yeah yeah, uh, she gets zapped out of existence. She does not exist anymore. Although she very soon comes back in her robot form, uh, a facsimile that's like an exact version of her, but mechanical inside. Yeah, completely artificial, but like a perfect replication right down to the thought wave patterns, because that's how good this machine is at understanding or I guess re- reading data, maybe not understanding data, maybe because that, that's kind of the point of this whole thing. 
assimilating data. I, I, I think it's really interesting the way uh, it becomes her and then by becoming her, it sort of affects all of its decision making. Yeah, especially since like they're working to bring out uh, Ilya's repressed memories within the the machine robot Ilya. Right, and uh, like Kirk actively courts that. He's like, listen, you have this previous relationship with her, Decker, so I need you to go seduce this machine just like I fucking would have. I, I don't need to tell you how to do this. You're supposed to be an Enterprise captain. Go fuck that machine. <laughs> Fuck the robot. This is your show, man. I, this is the one time where I won't fuck the alien space babe. Yeah, and but I, I mean, if if you won't do it, though. I mean, if, if you won't, I mean, I know I can, and he's probably right. No, he's absolutely right. He's, he's Kirk. Captain fucking Kirk. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I Leah starts to respond to it, and it, it's a, a weird thing where uh, it, it is. The, the sexuality of humanity or of, of uh, carbon-based life forms, I guess. It's that urge for sexuality that kind of throws all of its plans astray. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it eventually gives up the mission that it's supposed to go on because it doesn't involve the sex it wants. We'll, well get to that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it gives up its mission. I think it recontextualizes it. Well, yes, it doesn't give up, but it still is like, well... We're gonna do this, but with sex, though. <laughs> I I don't I don't agree with this version without sex. Mm. Uh, yeah. So through Ilya, we learned that the that the alien. Uh, we still don't know that the ship is the alien. We learned that it's called Beecher and that it's looking for its creator, but it doesn't know what the creator is, and it also thinks that the carbon life forms above the Enterprise are an infestation. Right. It because it, it, it as a living machine, as a sentient machine, it assumes that uh, the Enterprise is a more primitive version of itself and is itself the machine that is in charge of things. Yeah, yeah, and like humans are just fleas who shouldn't be there. Well, yeah, it, it's it's interesting that it has traveled all of this space and encompassed all of this knowledge, but the one thing it doesn't understand is humanity. Oh my God, it's Spock's Ark. Now it's do you get it? So <laughs> Spock even points it out. He's like, this yeah. is my story arc. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I need, I need it to end. <laughs> well, yeah, Spock is, is looking at it and he cries a tear for it. It's like, I understand. This is me. This is me five years ago. Like, it has traveled on this huge journey and experienced all of this stuff. And it just doesn't understand humanity uh, and emotion. But that's what's going to save us. Compassion is what we need. Mm-hmm. Which is also the larger concept of Star Wars and or Star Wars, Star it Trek is, and its utopianism. It is certainly not a concept in Star no, Wars. No, uh, really not. Well, it depends. You know, maybe Last Jedi. Most of the other ones are more about blood destiny. <laughs> uh, man, why do I love that shit so much? I, I, I probably know. know why, but I'm so over Star Wars. So Spock goes outside in the spaceship around. Yeah, here. he's he's uh, he steals a spacesuit and he goes outside. His plan is to get close to the V'ger, or well, to where, to like the center of the ship to find out more about V'ger and about the ship and about everything that's happening. Yeah, he he does a mind melt. 
he does. He goes he goes through the butthole and uh, he sees all the planets, realizes that it's like just this huge visual representation of Viger's journey through the universe. And then, yeah, he, he mind melds it and it's too much for him. And the butthole basically poops him back out into Kirk's arms. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's just far too much knowledge for him to uh, take on because this thing is it, it's its mission was to gather knowledge and it's just gathered all of it. And then it's been sent back to give it to its creator because so spoilers, this is yes. a Voyager mission. This is one of the Earth NASA Voyager missions. It's a probe sent to be uh, just, you know, gather information about space. This one apparently disappeared into a black hole, and it ended up on a machine planet who looked at its programming and then built it up to give it everything that it needed to do to complete its programming, which is acquire all knowledge. Or their their best reading of it. Of course, yeah. I, I should say that in reality, there were only a Voyager 1 and 2 mission. There, We never got to Voyager 6, which is what this one is. They they may have thought that we would have because the Voyager missions were happening at this time, like 1977 is when the first one happened, and they're like, they'll probably do a bunch of these. Oh they, man, they I wish not. we, I wish, <laughs> I wish we did more in space. I wish we didn't. I agree. Just stop at two moon landings. Yeah, and those don't really seem to be the most interesting thing, but those are like they they put the butts in seats. Uh, you yeah. know the. The deep space exploration is the big thing, but I guess we've kept up an amount of that. There's still probes. There's still rovers. Yeah, I, I just wish Elon Musk wasn't the one doing it. No, well, well, it might I mean, not be not for long. <laughs> no, he might not be doing much of anything for long. It's, well, except for like, living like a king still. Guess we'll see. And with everything else, I forgot about his stupid rockets. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's still an ongoing thing. So, uh, V'ger, you know, the... It's Voyager lost through a black hole. It was meant to do all of this stuff and potentially ran into the Borg or some machine race that we've never encountered on Trek. I don't know. But they're like, well, I mean, we we do feel this orphaned machine should be able to complete the mission it's programmed for because, you know, we care about machines completing their missions because that's what we do. Yeah, yeah. So they built this unbelievable thing. It's... I, I'm curious about the actual dimensions of V'ger, because one thing that's kind of bugged me about this movie is I can't even get a feel for the size of the Enterprise, just that it's tiny compared to V'ger. Yeah, you don't get a whole lot of contextualization of the Enterprise, which is weird considering you have like a good five-minute establishing shot of it. Yeah, yeah. Um... You just don't really get much established in proportion to it. Mm-hmm. Although you do see them fly that little fucking tin can all around it. So I guess you could kind of look at that and sort of gauge a little bit from it. Yeah, it's just the way they shoot it. I feel like the Enterprise has got to be bigger on the inside than on the outside. Mm. Um, but maybe like that, maybe that's just me. Like when they're standing on the saucer at the end, I just feel like they're too big yeah, that's against just the saucer. Weird. Yeah, I I think that's maybe just more a problem of that sequence. That scene is kind of weird, I agree. But um, I I guess the the main point is that while gathering all of this information, I think it's supposed to be on its way back, V'ger has gained sentience because of how much 
knowledge it's gathered, but it doesn't know what to do with it. Yeah, it, it knows it has to report it back to the creator. Right. Or, you know, report it back to Earth where it figures the creator is. Right, Beyond because that, it, it feels it has learned everything. Yeah, and now it's now it's wondering, like, okay, I've learned everything. Is this really all there is? Is that all there is? Yeah, uh, I, I think that's really compelling because it assumes it has learned everything because it has learned everything about physical reality. But now that it's merged with people, it's starting to realize that there's this whole other emotional reality that it knows nothing about. And, and yeah, that, that's why Spock feels so such a kinship with it. Yeah, it's his arc. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 to- I, I totally get that now. Yeah, it's just completely redone his arc. So it's like him realizing it and seeing his own arc in miniature and like, oh, wow, that's kind of amazing. This is my movie, isn't it? And that's yeah. why it's a cold movie. It's a movie of slow contemplation of uh, careful movements and gradually just looking at things and understanding them slowly over time. Gosh, and that's why Khan feels so different because it's a Kirk movie, and Kirk's brain it works completely different from Spock's. Kirk's brain is all cause and effect. You know, if yeah. someone wronged me, and I got to get revenge. He's he's doing a boxer from Shantung thing, in uh in in Wrath of Khan. Whereas yeah. you know, this this is just big space cloud, and now we've got to put our brains to work and figure out a way to deal with this in a compassionate way that does not result in uh any more people dying yeah uh, because viger has gotten to earth and he's it has sent its message and the creator has not responded and it doesn't like that or rather i don't think it's even that it doesn't like that it, well, it doesn't thinks, understand yeah it thinks that the carbon life forms are suppressing the creator's response so right. you know the logical thing to do then in order to meet the creator is to eliminate all the carbon life forms that are getting in the way. And right. It, it can it's, absolutely do that. It's it's planning to destroy all life on Earth, and that's kind of what they've been worried about all along. But they gradually figure out, like, well, I, I guess let's see if we can just talk to it in person. Kirk, I think, is the one who suggests, like, maybe we could just come meet you uh, in the middle there and we could actually come visit you. Well, what it yeah, what it is is uh, he Kirk is like carbon units know why the creator doesn't respond, but I'm not gonna tell you until you withdraw the death machines. Right. And it's like disclose the information. Disclose. Vijer needs the information. Why do you not disclose the information? And Kirk's like, well, I have to disclose it to Vijer itself. I have to go right to the middle to the core. All right. Right. So uh, everyone pretty quickly figures out that, yeah, uh, I think people are the creator, right? People have to be the creator. There's really no other way this works. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they figure it out, of course, immediately when they see the Voyager satellite. Well, yeah, they're like, yeah. oh, shit, that's familiar. And, they, you know, they rub a bit of dirt off and like, well, it's Voyager, not Voyager. There's something you don't know. You don't know everything. <laughs> you don't even know your own name, stupid sentient space probe. Yeah. And this is where I feel the sexuality thing really pays off in a really weird way. Yes. <laughs> so you, you get what I'm saying? Because, like, 
Decker, obviously, yeah, it's, uh, oh, I, I definitely want to become one with V'ger. <laughs> I mean, I would too if she looked like that. Yeah, so it's it's V'ger being like, I need to merge with the creator. And they've, her whole thing up to this point has been, no one has submitted the right code back. Yeah. The, the probe is supposed to submit its information and then they get a hold of the code and it's like, okay. Here's the code. You can submit your information. We're all prepared to receive it. And they yeah. would be. But she refuses. Yeah, she V'ger overheats the wire on the probe that would allow it to receive the information or, or to complete the transmission. Yeah, no, like blushing Sundara face. Like, no, I, I don't want to do it that way. I, I need to merge with the creator. <laughs> I, I think at this point, V'ger has figured out that it doesn't have all the information and thus yes. can't complete its programming to transmit everything. It's well, still got to do more. The information that it's missing is sexual and emotional. It's the human stuff that it's missing. So yeah. it needs to have that physical manifestation. It needs to. Well, yeah, it, it has to have sex with the person like that. That is, yeah. is essentially what it boils down to at the end is like. The machine realizes it wants to get down. <laughs> yeah, they they don't they don't come right out and say it. But, but there it, is that long pause where you know Decker has been offered and you know I or, no he hasn't even agreed to it fully yet. It's when the moment that they all realize it where they they've been saying like no we're we're ready and it's like no feature has to merge with the creator and it keeps saying it and the two of them share that long look. And it's almost like blushing and doing the puppy dog eyes at him. Like, Feature must meet with the creator. And everyone's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, that's what's going on. Okay. All right, we can do that. Hey, Decker, do you want to do me a solid? <laughs> so I love the <laughs> do me a solid. <laughs> <laughs> I love the main, like, central Feature room. This Super cool. is like my favorite, my favorite design in the whole movie. This room and like the the flashing view screens that just generate color. And while it doesn't seem to be emotional, it does have like emotional responses to lights. Like right, they, they change colors. It yeah. goes red. It goes green. It shakes whenever Vidra hears something it doesn't like. Yeah, and I it's it's sort of a really bizarre area because it looks like a launch pad. Oh, there, there's all these arrows of light that course in and out of the center where uh, the probe is, where the the Voyager wreckage is. Yeah, I, I just think that's like a really cool room. It's cool. It kind of looks like a set for an 80s music video in a weird sort of way. It absolutely does. <laughs> and the, the long cobblestone runway to get to it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that, like, just forms out of nothing. Super cool. Yep. But, yeah, um, Decker, Decker gets, <laughs> Decker gives Vizier the Decker pecker. Decker, Decker merges with it, uh, and that, that's kind of it, right? That's, that's kind of it. Um, they do all... the space baby thing, technically, but, but they, not... they don't show it. It's like, oh, well, there's a new, new life. Yeah, there's a new life out there. I think, uh, I think we gave it the ability to like question and like make leaps of logic and come up with new things. Because that, that that's always the thing mm -hmm. about like 
machines and AI, it's like humans can make, can invent new things. AI can just learn about things that are already there. Right. Is the idea, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it, it's sort of the cloning dilemma is that, you know, if you're cloning from the same material over and over again, it starts to break down over the generations because you just don't have any new data coming into a gene pool. Mm hmm. Uh, which is there's a TNG episode about that. <laughs> cool, cool. And yeah, like the the ship, like the Viger ship just disappears, and everybody lives happily ever after. And Kirk's, Kirk's like, eh, let's let's keep fucking enterprising, baby. That away, just kind of brush like that. You know the gesture, just eh, that away. Yeah. Well, it's also, huh? Well, I killed the captain and i replaced him with all of my crew i guess i may as well just <laughs> keep on going uh, what's Khan been up to yeah maybe i could look up some of my old enemies see what yeah. they've been up to wonder if anyone is uh, wrathful of me yeah so that that is the end of the movie and uh yeah in my opinion best star trek movie it is absolutely my favorite uh no, <laughs> <laughs> okay. no, no question yeah. All right. Of the few that I've seen, this is better than any of the Next Generation ones I saw. Uh, I like it better than the remake of Wrath of Khan uh, with Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. Uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, which is okay, but too grim. Yeah. It it feels it doesn't feel very Star Trekky in terms of its outlook. Uh, it, it's the only one that just does not feel optimistic, where all of the others have the optimism that guides them. Uh, that's the only one that really just feels kind of nihilistic to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I like this better than that. Uh, I still think Khan is better, but... It's fair, most people two. do. <laughs> uh, this, yeah, uh, this might be number two of the movies I've seen. Yeah, it's it's got great effects. It's... Uh, a really interesting thinky plot you know it's it's a it's not an action plot it's a classic star trek let's resolve a problem without shooting guns kind of way uh and i like that and and i like that while they're doing a space a 2001 space odyssey it's by no means a carbon copy no well this was going to be the first episode of phase two that they just expanded into a movie like, n not that it was already in the works. It's like they had a script for a first episode of Phase 2, and they're like, well, we decided to do a movie instead, so we'll just retrofit. Uh, a couple of the other scripts ended up being really bad next-gen episodes. Oh, okay. Oh, I really like like the whole idea and the concept of Beecher, which I thought was, before seeing this, but just seeing at the end of the movie mm. way back when, I thought Beecher was the villain, but the, there's no villain. No, no villain. It's not no, that kind of nobody movie. Nobody is evil in this movie. No. Yeah, no, and, and that's, that again, another thing that I love about it. It's not about conflict. It's just about resolving things. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah it's, I, I love this movie so much, but it's a, it's, it's a particular flavor, not for everyone. It's, yeah, like I said, like, when I was, maybe it's because I watched this, watched it the second time, like, two days after watching the first watching yeah. it the first time maybe that's why i didn't like it so much on the second watch 
Maybe so. And like it is a very good stoned movie because it's a big thinking movie. It's it's a really good one to just like smoke a bowl and sit back and consider all the things that are being said and all of just the weird interactions because there's a lot of space around them. Uh, every time something happens, it gives you some space around it to consider it, uh, yeah. to just sort of ruminate on it. Yeah. Just straight up slow cinema. I'm into it. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, no, a genre I, I dig. I like it, but I, I don't think I could watch it unstoned again. That's fair. I mean, it's it's a movie that's more fun to watch stoned. <laughs> and, and I absolutely, completely understand people who don't like it. Uh, I get you. I get you. I get it. It's very slow moving. The, that sort of thing is not for everybody, but uh, that's so my kind of thing. And, you know, it's formative for me. That's This is probably a big part of why I like this kind of cinema. I saw this when I was like seven. <laughs> you know, I, I think if I had seen it at that age, I'd feel a lot differently, too. Yeah, uh, I definitely saw this before I saw 2001. <laughs> oh, I would have you know, I would have enjoyed this a lot less, I think, if I hadn't seen 2001. It it really colors it well seeing it now, because you really understand where they're coming from. Yeah, and I don't think I would have otherwise. Like, especially knowing that this came after that and Star Wars, and they're like, we're Star Trek, we're not doing Star Wars, we're doing 2001. I respect that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, any last thoughts before we move on to part three? And we're back for part three, the watched stacks. We're talking about other movies we've watched in the past week and deciding what to cover next week. So we've got 11 pictures in the watch stacks this week. Only 11. That's two less than last week. Yeah. I so we have nearly as much choice paralysis. Uh, some. These are probably no, tougher won't. ones to choose between, I think. These oh, okay. are some more interesting ones. Oh, oh, there is some interesting ones here. You're right. So first up, we have The Werewolf versus The Vampire Woman. This is a very early Paul Nashy. I talked a bit about this last week. Mm-hmm. So Paul Nashy, really big guy in Spanish horror. Uh, sort of the Lon Chaney there, as I mentioned. Uh, Lon Chaney, best known for The Wolfman, arguably. Uh, Lon Chaney Jr., rather. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that that was sort of uh, Nashi's favorite character, too. He played Waldemar Daninsky, this count who's a werewolf, and he played him like 30 times. He, he made oh, so wow. many of these movies. This is not the first one, I don't think. I believe Assignment Terror is before this. So this one, he starts out dead. <laughs> oh. <laughs> they, they reel him in on, uh, or roll him in on a gurney at a morgue and there's like these two really skeptical morgue attendants and they're like well i don't believe in this werewolf nonsense <laughs> <laughs> and you know one of them pulls out the silver bullets in him he's like we'll just see about that apparently if you remove the silver bullets from a werewolf he'll revive i don't believe that at all and you know they fuck around and find out obviously oh, he revives yeah, and, you know, smash cut to opening credits. <laughs> uh, and then it's these two ladies who are doing a thesis on witchcraft, which has been the plot of a couple of movies I've watched recently, oddly enough. 
but uh, they they go to this small town because they think that there's witchcraft rituals there. There's some famous grave of a vampire that they're looking for. Okay. And instead they run into Nashi uh, as Daninsky. And he's, you know, obviously totally fine. And he's living in this old mansion and he knows exactly the tomb they're talking about. It's like, holy shit, that's right by my place. Yeah, I'll show you guys where that is. Uh, even though he's a werewolf and uh, is, I don't know, he, he gets involved in this whole thing where he falls in love with one of the women and the vampire woman is, they, they find the tomb and the other woman, like the, the friend, pulls the stake out of the vampire woman and then the two of them become besties and they're just like, running around frolicking hand in hand and doing vampire shit (laughs) (laughs) you know being fun lesbian vampires having a just being a couple uh well yeah yeah uh and then uh you know nashi is sort of in love with the main woman but like her boyfriend is a cop who's supposed to be showing up at some point and then you know never really does until way too late in the movie weird weird stuff uh I, I really love the transition of Nashi into werewolf form because he has like this really harsh unibrow in the middle of his transformation. <laughs> uh, next up, we've got Yakuza Wolf. Now, I think I already asked you last time you mentioned this, but he does not turn into a werewolf. Correct. Uh, he does in Wolf Guy, but not in Yakuza Wolf. Uh, this is a Sunny Chiba picture. This is first in Shout Factory's brand new Sh- Sunny Chiba collection. Uh, this is a pretty obscure movie. I'd never heard of it before. It's not highly talked about. There's very few ratings online, but it's total banger. It's kind of like Female Prisoner Scorpion, but like the last 15 minutes, it's just all him getting bloody revenge and nothing else. And he even has her outfit, like the trench coat with the hat. He wears that. That's what he's dressed as. Cool. Uh, But it's Sonny Chiba, of course. Right. Uh, Yeah. Like his dad was killed by Yakuza and his sister was kidnapped and forced into sex slavery. Obviously, you know, she's working in one of their brothels. So he's out to get his bloody revenge and it's just him slaying dudes over and over and over. Uh, there, there's like an open kill montage. He does like a straight up Jason Voorhees kill like in, I think it's Friday the 13th part two, where two people are having sex in a hammock and he spears through them. <laughs> Damn. That's the first kill of this movie. Oh my God. All right. Uh, and then there's like a part where he like chases someone down and runs over their hand with his car. The effects are very good. It's very bloody. Uh, yeah, it's just full tilt, him getting bloody revenge, really abstractly filmed sometimes, really cool lighting. Uh, yeah, it's a trip. Cool. Next up, we've got The Nightmare Before Christmas. I bet you've seen this one before. Uh, funny story. When I was young, our mom wouldn't let us watch it because she thought it would ruin she thought it was like against what Christmas stood for, which Weird. is interesting because, well, she, I, I don't think she had seen it herself, but it's interesting. It's typically it's the way, yeah. you know, when, when against, someone has that. <laughs> yeah, it is not uh, against what Christmas stands for. And, you know, Jack Skellington learns a valuable lesson. Well, kind of. And it's, it's a bit of both. I feel like it's the perfect seasonal depression movie. 
it's you know jack going into this season and it's it's him trying to get into this christmas spirit that he understands is supposed to be a thing that you know it's it's pretty natural it's like i don't get it and none of the people around him are are in a state where they're able to get in it's like you know this isn't really what we do we're we're halloween people i don't don't understand this christmas stuff warmth giving i don't know yeah i I love the mayor i can't do anything to help i'm an elected official he's so good uh the 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 mayor with his twisty face uh and it's it's not that he has two sides he has the fake side and then the scared side yeah <laughs> he oh. he's just scared all the time oh mr oogie boogie man oogie boogie uh just absolutely brilliant is it like a cap calloway impression uh oh, is like that what he's doing oh completely okay. uh and i i love how beleaguered santa is how he's just he he's the only uh relatable character in the movie it's like man why did you kidnap me? What the hell are you doing, you jerk? Oh my god, the songs. Great they're, songs. They're, they're, I mean, some of them are iconic Halloween songs by now. It's Danny Elfman's best work. Like I, I would say it is Danny Elfman's masterpiece for sure. Oh, I can't think of anything he's done that's better. Just like the only maybe. The only rival no, is not better. The only rival I would say is the Batman score for the 1989 Tim Burton Batman. Oh, it's pretty that's great. A, that was him. That's him. That's a good one. That's a really great score. That that's the only thing I would say even comes close to rivaling this, but it's got to be this. Yeah. Next next up we've got Robinson's Garden. Uh, talk about slow cinema. This is another slow cinema movie. All right. Uh, so this one's like eco punk though. I, I told you about this one quite a while ago. There's, it's about this drug dealer named Kumi, and she's just coming home from the bar one night, hammered, and she's like stumbling down this uh, alley strewn with trash, and decides to hop over a fence. You know, just for fun. Why not? You're drunk. You're gonna hop over a fence. Oh man, uh, back when I drank, I've hopped over so many fences. Absolutely. Some successfully, some not. Right. And so she finds over this fence, this gigantic overgrown abandoned lot. And there's several buildings on it and just a huge amount of green space. Cool. He's like, cool. I'm going to, I'm going to just take over this. I'll I'll spray paint everything. I'm going to start my own garden. But she doesn't know how to do any of that. She doesn't really know how to start a garden or (laughs) do things. You know, she's lived an exclusively urban lifestyle. It's kind of like a proto freegan. We we see her just like kind of getting free food everywhere. And that that's sort of uh the dream of this place to sort of start a commune with all her punk friends. But no one's really interested and she doesn't really know what she's doing. Join, maybe, if she knew what she was doing. It's just her spending a whole lot of time in this space and at first it seems like this great venture, but no one's really helping out and she sort of slowly starts to lose her grasp on reality being in this big empty space and the only person there and it's also sort of like it's it's maybe like a shining sort of thing where the space is loose in terms of its own reality so it it, it becomes very dreamlike uh, as she's just the only person in here as seasons change cool 
Uh, next up, we have the 36 Crazy Fists or Jackie Chan's 36 Crazy Fists. Are they, uh, is this about toppling a kung fu school? Um, kind of. Well, not really. I mean, there is a kung fu school, but it's it's more just a guy joins a kung fu school to get revenge. It's sort of a mashup of the 36th Chamber of Shaolin, of course. Right. And proto-drunken master, because it's got a drunken master guy in it. Okay. But in, in terms of the Jackie Chan-ness, uh, he was the fight choreographer on the movie, but he does not appear in the movie. They just kind of, after he became famous with Drunken Master, like the year later, they reissued it and really focused on Jackie Chan being involved. <laughs> that sounds about right. So like in this version, it's a really bad English dub, just terrible a British dub. Like everyone has sort of Cockney accents, which is very out of place. I, oh, I sent you a me. clip of it, yeah. Yeah, um, it, and I think from like the 15 seconds, I was like, this is the worst dub I have ever heard. It, and it's it's very goofy, like a lot of very silly jokes, a lot of gay and dick jokes. It's, it's similar to the Taiwan ones we watched. Mm, uh, right. Very similar flavor to the, not so much Kung Fu Wonder Child, much more Seven Lucky Kids in tone, I would say. Okay. But it's it's the you know uh, the basic plot. There's a guy who goes to this small town or lives in this small town, and he's attacked by a bunch of thugs, and they're like wrecking up the place. So he has to go to the Shaolin Temple to learn enough uh, fighting capability that he can fight their main guy and get his sister back or some shit. But then like he goes to the temple and it's just not going fast enough. So he goes out and he finds this drunken master who helps teach him and move things forward. Okay, so so the other kung fu plots. Yeah, it's one of those other ones. Yeah, I, I had like a one in five chance of guessing right. Yeah. Uh, next up, we've got a taste of flesh, which is the next Doris Wishman film. Oh. So this is the one where there are uh, these assassins who walk into a Doris Wishman movie because uh, oh. most Doris Wishman movies have or of this era at least her 60s movies all have the same basic thing where there's a woman or several women who are in an apartment in lingerie or maybe they're showering or maybe they're having baths maybe it's all of those in yeah, this it's yeah. all of those because okay. there's three women right. <laughs> uh one of them is this lady who is new in town and she had this it's it's implied she had a fling with one of the other girls in the apartment when this girl was traveling okay and that girl uh has no job she just kind of lives there with her sugar mama who's the one who really owns the apartment uh and you know you set up all of these emotional things and all, all of these sort of relationships and then these two assassins walk in and they're gonna kill the prime minister of some nation that doesn't exist but it's where you know, girl number three is from, like the the visiting girl is from. Okay. So they they want to assassinate the prime minister because he's going to be uh, in the hotel across the street the next morning, and you know it's it's them invading the space and being men in this female space. You know, it's a the Wishman thing. <laughs> <laughs> next up, we've got Blood Hunter. It's from uh, mid '90s. It's like Morbius, but. <laughs> uh, Mid-90s shot on video Morbius. 
Okay, so so like Morbius, but better. Kind of, yeah. Morbius. I haven't seen Morbius, but probably better. Uh, this he's he's in rural Kentucky, which is backwoods Kentucky, but he's been there for centuries. He's this Russian vampire who's been in America for like three hundred years. Okay. And he just decides, eh, you know, I'm going to become a blood hunter. I'm going to uh, clean up some of the bad elements that are making this place bad. All right. So he's mostly just killing hunters, poachers. Uh, there's one point where he goes to a convenience store and the clerk says something really creepy about a little girl. So he twists the guy's head off like it's soda pop and drinks from his neck, which is pretty fun. <laughs> All right. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, next, we've got Stone Cold. Ooh, shit, this one rocks. Uh, oh. <laughs> this is a deranged 90s action movie, like perfect from that passing point between the 80s and 90s. Because okay. it, it's got the feel of the big canon 80s actioners like Cobra or Invasion USA. It's got a lot right. of both of those, too. So Brian Bosworth, he was... A linebacker for the Seattle Seahawks, who was really hot and then totally flamed out after one season or two seasons or something, got like an early injury and was never able to do much of anything. But he's our star. So just a big guy. And he's got a multicolored mullet. He's wearing dangly fucking earrings. He's bleach blonde. You know the poster art for Cool as Ice, the vanilla ice movie? Yeah. Oh my God. Does he look like that? He looks like the linebacker version of that it's it's like someone looked at that poster and said let's do that but edgy like let's let's do this but for real because <laughs> you know he's a motorbiker and he joins a nazi biker gang all right undercover oh uh oh, okay. and undercover because you know he's he's a good guy he he is our hero technically even though he never succeeds at anything the entire movie uh <laughs> He goes undercover in this biker gang uh, led by Chains, which is Lance Henriksen. Oh. The great Lance Henriksen. You know, Bishop from Aliens and so forth. Yeah. And the old man from Detroit become human. That's true, yeah. Uh, So uh, Lance Henriksen has this whole plan because the the governor is really tough on crime. So he's going to assassinate the governor uh, and... Our guy is supposed to get into the it and uh, stop this from happening. Spoilers, he doesn't succeed. Um, <laughs> the the whole like last half hour movie of the movie, it's kind of like uh, our first movie tonight, where just all action sequence for the last half hour, where they lay siege to the Mississippi State Capitol. The okay. whole biker gang, a uh, bunch of bikers with trucks and guns and helicopters attacking the capitol building it's like a gi joe movie at the end it's crazy oh. totally so, so like what uh so like what those trump guys were trying to do and, and what they yeah. thought they were doing yeah it's like the successful insurrection uh totally nuts a really really crazy movie cool next up we've got dark places this is part of the uh euro crypt of christopher lee volume two Oh, okay. So not related to Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, I take it. Unrelated, although kind of a similar, like the vibe that they were going for is based on this era because it's like British, it's gothic, 
It's kind of lo-fi. It's sort of TV adjacent. I think this guy, Don Sharp, who directed it, did a lot of BBC TV. Okay. So it's a pretty basic gothic concept. Uh, This guy inherits this spooky haunted mansion, you know, like you do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he comes to town and Christopher Lee is the local doctor and he's sketchy. He's maybe trying to gaslight him out of some sort of money that's hidden in the house. And he's got this nurse who works with him, who sort of befriends the guy and is maybe working with him or is maybe working against him. Ultimately, you start to realize that maybe there's something wrong in the house, but maybe it's also just the guy who took over the house isn't altogether right in the head. Okay. Uh, it's it's a very slow burn. Uh, not bad. Uh, next, we've got House of Terrors, also known as The Ghost of the Hunchback. Ooh. This is another gothic horror. It's a Ooh. Japanese gothic horror. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I'm interested. So mid sixties, uh, a similar plot. There's this, uh, th- this woman, her husband suddenly dies and she learns that he bought this huge haunted estate. <laughs> and sure. Yeah. And like she, she didn't know about it at all. So she like goes to check it out and you know, some people go with her. Uh, but there's like this hunchback guy who lives there and runs the place. And, you know, the place is obviously haunted as hell. There's this huge monster statue in the middle of the house that seems to give off really bad vibes. <laughs> you, know, right. you know, typical yeah. gothic horror stuff. People sure. start getting picked off, you know, that sort of thing. As you do. And last up, we've got the Thrill Killers uh, from the Ray Dennis Steckler box, uh, the incredibly strange films of Ray Dennis Steckler. Maybe the best Ray Dennis Steckler movie. Sort of like the ideal version of a Ray Dennis Steckler movie, I feel like. Uh, so you probably have not seen any of his work. Uh, I, I talked about, Probably not. Yeah, I, I talked about the incredibly strange creatures who stopped, live, stopped living and became mixed up zombies a couple times I, last month. Yeah, I definitely remember the title. Indeed. This is the movie he made after it. And it stars himself as the villain again, or as the killer, as one of the killers. Uh, the the thing with Steckler is that his plots don't go from point A to point B. They have a point, and then they have another point, and then there's another thing. And, you know, there's some things. Some things happen. Uh, th- this one, he's a serial killer, so he just kind of goes from one victim to another, and, uh, he, you know, he he's not driven by any particular thing, so it's just like a ping-pong ball. You know, it's, it's like we talked about with Michael Myers back when we were doing Halloween, which oh, is interesting because yeah. this is 64. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because he's the director. So the director is the killer. Uh, and you you have all these spooky POV shots. And it's like, oh, he is the killer, but he's also the filmmaker. Interesting. Uh, uh, and the the way just shocking things happen out of nowhere is really interesting. The it, It's got this sort of perfect exploitation open where you spend a few minutes getting to know two characters. And uh, I, I was totally shocked to realize right from like the first few words that the narrator was Coleman Francis. And it probably means nothing to you, but Coleman Francis, he was he's like the poor man's Ed Wood. <laughs> okay. the, wait, the poor man's Ed Wood. Hold on. That's what I'm. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. Like, I remember 
in I think it's in the Ed Wood documentary or not documentary, um, the Ed Wood book by uh, like the definitive book. I, I read it a couple of years ago by Gray and it's someone's talking about how, you know, everybody talks shit about Ed Wood, but he was a filmmaker who had drive and passion and, you know, his stuff is so much more interesting and like they use Coleman Francis as the contrast. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like I, I worked with this guy, Cole from Coleman Francis one time. Now that guy's a shit filmmaker. <laughs> uh, so, it, but he has this very distinctive voice because he did this movie, the beast of Yucca flats with Tor Johnson, where they didn't have any live sound. So it's mostly just him narrating bullshit. The whole movie. Because like I've seen that. You probably have a big mystery science theater episode. One of my favorites. You've okay. probably seen that. Probably. Because it's just Tor Johnson stumbling around this uh, blasted landscape in the desert, and the the voiceover going, "Flag on the moon. How'd it get there?" <laughs> Shit like well, that. We know how the flag got there. Yeah, we do. But that's that's one of the things he says. So this. It, it opens with that guy talking and talking exactly like that. And it's like, oh, my God, it's Coleman Francis. I had to go look it up. It's like, is this actually Coleman Francis? Like, holy shit. Uncredited Coleman Francis as the narrator. <laughs> but right it, it opens with him, like, narrating these two dudes who you're supposed to get to know. And one of them is this guy who's an aspiring actor in Hollywood. And they're talking about how he's all caught up in the whirlwind of progress. <laughs> And then there's this other dude that they, we spend some time introduced to who's this hardworking Greek immigrant who's got this family and he's just really trying hard. And he he believes in the system, but he, too, is caught up in the whirlwind of progress. Mm -hmm. And we see him driving down the highway to go to work and he stops to pick up a hitchhiker and it's Ray Dennis Steckler and he shoots him in the face. And that's how the movie opens. It's like, oh, shit. We spent all this time getting to know this character after getting to know the main character, like the guy who will turn out to be the main character of the movie, the actor guy. And then this other guy shows up and he just gets shot in the face. And it's like, well, that's really surprising for 1964. I, I really didn't expect that. Cool. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's him bouncing around shooting people. Also, there's these three escaped mental patients who are axe murdering people. Because, <laughs> you know, it couldn't just be about the one thing. No, you got you get a few get a few things in there. You gotta. So those are our eleven picks. What do you figure? Um, hmm. you're right. This is a tougher call. Yeah, there's there's a few really interesting ones. Yeah. Um. Oh man, I, there's a bunch of, in here I kind of want to see. Mm hmm. But, Any questions to guide uh, you? Yeah. What is is there anything in here that you think I'd like, but you think I wouldn't pick? Uh, I don't know. I mean, Robinson's Garden would probably be the the really outside pick that I think you would probably dig. Um, okay. I don't know. Like the 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 uh, top pick the ones would would be like Yak as a Wolf, Thrill Killers, Stone Cold. Like Stone Cold and Yak as a Wolf and Werewolf vs Vampire Woman are all total blast stuff. Right. Uh, I mean, Nightmare Before Christmas you've seen before, so yeah. it's not a need-to-see kind of thing. Yeah, it's more about whether or not I would want to cover it. Right, true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what? Stone Cold and Yakuza Wolf are both utter fucking bangers, action-wise. Cool. Uh, let's do... Let's do Stone Cold. All right. 
it's an interesting one. It's a pretty obscure early 90s entry that kind of fucking rocks. Right on. Okay, so we have a number of additions to the stacks this week as well. Uh, so first up is Dashra, which is the first Tunisian horror movie. Quite recent. Oh. Uh, like the first ever? Yeah, first oh. horror movie to come out of Tunisia. So okay. my my understanding is it's these guys hear about, you know, weird culty goings on in small remote mountain towns and they go to investigate and they find a lot of really fucking crazy fucked up shit. Uh, but I don't know more about it than that. Just that it's, it goes balls to the wall after that. All right. Cool. Uh, next is Yakuza Wolf two, uh, or Yakuza Wolf. Uh, what, what I think it's, I know the first one is I perform murder. I think it's send my condolences is number two is the subtitle. That's awesome. That is such a cool subtitle for yeah like this. yeah so you know him continuing his bloody rampage obviously cool. uh next what's up connection is the next film from the same director as robinson's garden okay uh and my understanding is it's similar like it's another weird slow cinema thing that's also from the punk scene and it's about this small town that gets taken over by a corporation or something and it's just them rebelling against the corporation and so forth. Cool. It's supposed to be really interesting. Uh, next, we've got Dance of the Drunken Mantis, which is next one in the Jackie Sploitation box or collection or whatever. Oh, yeah. The, the not Jackie Chan's. Yeah. So this one is interesting because it's a sequel to a Jackie Chan movie and fairly official. It's just it's a sequel that doesn't have him in it. Doesn't have his character. Okay. Have you ever seen the original Drunken Master? Uh, once a long, long time ago, and I remember not liking it, but I hadn't seen a whole... It was like the first time I had seen any of his Hong Kong work. I'd only seen mm. his Hollywood stuff. Right. Because this is technically a sequel to that, and it's got Yuan Wuping as the director, who's, you know, I think the guy who directed the first one is a pretty major uh, kung fu director. Mm -hmm. uh, but it does not star him. It's based on new characters except one of them I, I like the guy who trained him i think returns in this but then he's like training someone else to deal with a different threat and it's mostly based on this other guy who's training him in his journey and it's just kind of a vaguely parallel thing okay cool uh next we've got another day another man which is another uh doris wishman picture and the person on the cover looks like elvira yeah, I mean, I assume she's someone in one of the ones I've seen. My understanding is this is kind of a clip movie. <laughs> uh, okay. It, it apparently uses a lot of clips from uh, the one I watched, the uh, or, or uh, from Bad Girls Go to Hell, as well as one called My Brother's Wife, I think. Okay. Uh, but it, it's a story where this woman who lives in an apartment and is hanging around in lingerie... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and uh, she, for whatever reason, has to become a prostitute. And uh, most of it, as I understand, is just clips from other movies. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, next, we've got The Last of England, which is a Derek Jarman film. This has been on the stacks previously. It was just one that was submerged. Okay. As we've talked about from October, uh, this is just, uh, it's an experimental art film. 
uh, as Derek Jarman's films tend to be. Uh, starring Tilda Swinton back in her early days when she was an experimental artist and not really uh, an actor. Okay. And it's her just wandering through post-industrial 80s UK landscapes. And it's sort of meant to be post-apocalyptic, but it's all just real places at the time. Right. Uh, next, we've got Dracula and Son, which is the next one from the Eurocrypt of Christopher Lee box. Cool. This is like a French satirical film, I think, or maybe it's Spanish. No, I think it's French. A satirical movie that's sort of based on the Dracula thing uh, where he's driven out of his castle and he becomes a horror star. (laughs) he, He moves to England and becomes a horror star, but like... His son isn't into it, and he's in love, and they both fall in love with the same lady. Weird. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, next, we've got Strangler versus Strangler, a Serbian film oh. about, like, there there is no slashers. There there has never been a serial killer in Serbia, so they're like, well, I mean, it's it's like every other major country, or you know, we we gotta step things up if we want to be a major metropolis we got to have a serial killer so there's <laughs> competing serial killers right <laughs> that's that's amazing i i hear it's a very funny dark comedy oh man uh, just the premise alone oh my gosh totally uh next rat fink a boo boo okay this is the next ray dennis steckler one where it's his version of a superhero movie so there's Ratfink and Boo Boo, who are like trying to get back the kidnapped daughter or kidnapped girlfriend of a rock star who's, I think, maybe been abducted by a gorilla. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I hear it's very, very goofy, uh, kind of a parody <laughs> of Batman 66 in some ways. Uh, and the, the last entry is supposed to, like the last new one is, of course, supposed to be Dirty Ho. Uh, for some reason, I clicked on that, and the wrong movie showed up. You'll see that it's Howard Stern's Private Parts. I'm just going to go oh. fix that. <laughs> I don't know why that appeared. <laughs> All right. I, I do not own that movie. <laughs> okay, so what do you figure for our main picture next week? Um, oh, geez. I'm, I'm looking through the list, but I can't remember which one is the next Al Adamson. I'm not necessarily saying I want to go down that road, but I just want to... I have the name on my mind, so it would be Psycho Agogo. Uh, it looks like maybe it's not on here for some reason. I gotta add it back on, I guess. Oh, okay, okay. It seems to just be absent, but yes, it, it would be Psycho Agogo. I'll just add it on right now, because so oh, it, it would be the one that there's like the three different cuts of. Remember? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So yeah, I just wanted to refresh yeah, that's my memory on good that. to get get that back in there because i it was missing yeah and, and i do want to get back to him at some point but i don't know if this is the week for it that's fair uh i'm also you know i'm i'm really fascinated by that concept of the uh strangler versus strangler mm-hmm. the serbian movie uh, ha- have you seen that I have not. Uh, it's a recently released one from Mondo Macabro. Uh, they're the ones who, let me think, what did we watch from Mondo Macabro? Oh, yeah, they, they did Gemini and uh, Hiruko the Goblin. Oh, okay. Oh, Gemini. 
good. Hell yeah. Want to do that? Sure. Uh, so right. Strangler versus Strangler, directed by Slobodan Sjan. Uh, or something. I will have to figure out how to pronounce that. It has accents that I don't recognize. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Okay, so that would be next week, uh, Strangler versus Strangler and Stone Cold, I believe. Yep, yeah, that's what we picked for that. Cool, cool. Uh, should be fun. Uh, should be a couple uh, interesting oddball entries. I, I'm kind of glad to have us going after some really obscure shit because we've we've kind of been doing a lot of pretty mainstream stuff for us lately (laughs) we have um yeah we have haven't we yeah time to dig into some weird stuff always a favorite cool cool i'm looking forward to it should be a good time uh all right well uh any last thoughts before we conclude for this week no, unless I just say photon torpedoes really slowly again. <laughs> Let's not. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks, everyone, so much for listening. And uh, must merge with the creator.